This episode of Yap is sponsored by Olay Body. Why do you shower? The most obvious answer is cleanliness, but there's way more to it. If you listen to Yap, you know that cold showers can improve your energy and increase your alertness. But I bet you didn't know that taking a shower as part of your morning routine can positively influence your mood for the rest of the day. For me, feeling fresh and clean helps me increase levels of mood-boosting hormones like serotonin, which ultimately leads to improved confidence, better overall mood, and motivation throughout my day. And now my showers are even better since Olay just launched a new collection of skincare-inspired body washes that are designed to treat a variety of skin conditions, like Olay's soothing body wash with vitamin B3 complex and oat extract, which is specifically made to soothe eczema-prone skin. And my favorite part about it is that it's completely fragrance-free and it leaves me feeling super clean without a sticky, filmy residue. You need to give these Olay body washes a try. They completely changed how I thought about my body care routine and my shower. You can find Olay body care products in the store or online. Olay Body, fearless in my skin. You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Welcome, everybody. You are listening to a live episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. I'm your host, Halataha, and today we're hosted by the biggest club on the Clubhouse app, the Human Behavior Club. I am super excited for this amazing masterclass. It is presented by Talkspace, and we've got an amazing celebrity panel with Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Robin Smith, Amy Marin, Jonas Koffler, and so many other incredible experts and Clubhouse influencers and doctors who are going to be talking all about how to conquer our invisible enemies and help our mental health. I'm going to be introducing the panel more thoroughly throughout the show, and I encourage all of you guys to tap their bios, poke around, make sure you follow them here on Clubhouse and on Instagram. And mental health is something that is so important. I'm super passionate about it. We all are at YAP, and that's why today's session is all about conquering your invisible enemies in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month. Okay, so I definitely want to get into this conversation. We've got a loaded panel. I want to help inspire others to take better care of their own mental health and conquer their invisible enemies, like I said. So again, we have an amazing panel. Most of our uh, panelists are here. We have Dr. Daniel Amen. He is a celebrity doctor and he's the director of Amen Clinics. Dr. Caroline Leaf should be joining us soon. She joined us back on episode number 114. She's a neuroscientist and the author of Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. Dr. Robin Smith is a former therapist in residence on The Oprah Show. She's considered the trauma surgeon for the heart and soul. Jonas Koffler, will be joining us soon. 
and he came on episode number 45. He is a co-founder of Radical Wellness. Kate Rosenblatt, she is a senior clinical manager at Talkspace. We've got the lovely Amy Marin. She's a psychotherapist and the international bestselling author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. We've got Dr. Carlene McMillan. She's a psychiatrist and co-founder of the Brooklyn Minds. She's also a fellow Clubhouse Creator First Program finalist. And her husband, Dr. Owen Muir, he's a, a psychiatrist and CIO of Brooklyn Minds. And then lastly, Nidhi Tawari. She is an EMDRI movement therapist and founder founder of the Mental Health Matters Club on Clubhouse. So welcome to this amazing panel. So happy to have you guys all here. And we're going to get started into this amazing panel session. I'm going to start off the conversation. It looks like coronavirus seems to be slowing down, at least in America. And I'm from New Jersey on the East Coast, and we're all starting to resume many of the activities that have been off limits. So for example, I just signed up for the gym again, and I'm about to start going to in-person gym classes for the first time in a year. So Over the past year, I've talked about mental health a lot on my podcast, given the current situations. And a lot of my guests have mentioned that mental illness is the next pandemic that we need to tackle after coronavirus. So can somebody on the panel give some stats and shed some color in terms of the breadth of the problem when it comes to mental health around the world? So if anybody wants to kick the, oh, Dr. Robin is here. So Dr. Robin, I'm going to kick it to you. I know you just joined, but I know you have an opinion on this topic. So how would you describe the state of mental health in the world? And then anybody else who wants to contribute to this, flash your mic and I'll kick it over to you afterwards. So Dr. Robin, take it away. Yes, thanks, Hal. I'm you know, really glad to be here with you and in this room, your room. And uh, it's such an important question that you're asking. It's bigger than in some ways, and it's older, it's more ancient than COVID-19. I mean, COVID-19 came, it feels like, out of nowhere. And we know it harmed many people and lives. And I know it personally touched your life as well, Hala. But mental illness and really struggling with emotional distress is ancient. It is something that has been going on since the beginning of time. And it's also something that has been underreported. It has been hidden because of shame and blame. And so this is a new era. Uh, When you say that, you know, mental illness is the next pandemic, it's just actually the pandemic that we have refused to take seriously. I couldn't agree more. And does anybody else on the panel, oh, it looks like Daniel and Dr. Caroline and, and perhaps Jonas want to chime in. So Daniel, why don't we start with you? What do you think? Well, I'm so excited to be with all of you and a number of my friends. Depression tripled from February of 2020 to August, and it was already at epidemic highs. Suicide from 1999 to 2018 went up 33 percent, while cancer went down 27%. Why? I think we're working on the wrong paradigm. We do brain imaging. I have nine clinics around the country. And what we've discovered is most psychiatric issues are not mental health problems. They're brain health problems. And if you get your brain better, your mind will be better. Plus, nobody really wants to see a psychiatrist. No one wants to be labeled as defective or abnormal. But everybody wants a better brain. So I think we have a very serious marketing problem. We need to change the conversation, I think, from mental health to brain health 
And if we do, we'll get a whole bunch more people excited to have better brains and better minds. I really like that positioning in terms of the fact that you think that the marketing is a big problem. And I definitely agree with that. So Dr. Caroline, what are your thoughts in terms of the state of mental wellness in in the country and also in the world? Hi, everyone. Hi, Daniel. Hi, love you to be. And Amy, a couple of my friends on the panel, so nice to see you. I think it is such a mess. And not only is it a mess now, it has been for years and it's never been something that's mental health has never been handled well. And I agree that, you know, to suddenly say that there's a new pandemic with mental health is wrong because we've always had mental health issues from the beginning of time. Life is filled with adverse circumstances. So it's nothing new. It's just that every generation is facing something different and dramatic. And every year we face something different and dramatic as a global society. And then we have all our individual issues. The problem is that only 3% of leaders and 4% of of, um, leaders in the church and 3% of leaders across the board are actually speaking about mental health. And even though there is about their own mental health, you know, with authenticity and vulnerability. So it's made out to be, there's no space that's been created for genuinely for people to be able to express how they feel. And it's a very normal reaction to be battling with life because life is tough. And things like depression and anxiety are not illnesses per se, they are actually warning signals that there's something going on in your life and you have a narrative. I think we need to level the playing field and we need to allow people to express themselves more easily and to make this whole, um, it shouldn't be just, oh, there's something wrong with them, they've got to, you know, they're acting crazy. It's we all battling and we all battle in different cycles of our life and in different ways and we need to make that okay. And there's so much research, um, I have done research on this, there was a study that came out of University of Tokyo and Texas just recently showing that the way that we view mental health has a massive impact on our physical and on our physiology so the whole psycho neuro biology of the human is very important to consider. So in the West, we have a very strong philosophy of as soon as you have some like um, depression or anxiety, it's seen as a symptom to suppress something bad versus generally in the Eastern philosophy, when you see something like that happening in your life, a pattern of depression or anxiety or something or a combination, because they never happen in isolation, that is actually a helpful messenger. And when you view it like that, there's a immediately, when you view something like that as a helpful messenger, it doesn't make them nice to go through. But the research shows that, you know, your physiology changes. You'll have 1,400 neurophysiological responses that now start working for you instead of against you. You know, so there's a massive body of research that's moving in the direction of we need to be more open and more accepting. And I know we talk about that, but we're not doing it. There's a talk, but the, the people are still seen as crazy or as there's something wrong with them. It still affects the insurance policies. And we don't have sufficient community um, and global and social allowance for people battling as a norm. And there's always this sort of thing that, oh, I've you know, got to hide. People are hiding there. They're scared of, as, as Daniel said, they're scared of psychiatrists. They're scared of, and it shouldn't be like that. We should be able to express ourselves. So I think, and last thing, just very quickly, is that what's not been spoken about sufficiently, and I write about this, is that, that just before the pandemic hit, a trend had already been observed between 96 and 2014, and fed, there's federal data on this, and then subsequently many, many, many studies and showing that the rate of people dying younger, which has been, I mean, living longer has been has been like a trend for years. But this trend started reversing in the in the mid nineties, and has got so bad just before the pandemic hit. People were dying eighteen to twenty eight to twenty five years younger than they normally would, and that's in this current advance in medical technology and 
um, everything like that doesn't make sense. And when they track it back, they call it deaths of despair, and that's what goes to the you know the increased suicide rate Daniel was talking about, and the increase. And this is before the pandemic, and it's they're tracking it back to mismanagement of mind. People are not being allowed to process their narrative that they're just being labeled and stuck in a box, and we're not open in opening things enough. So if we can open things more, we can help. And, and I can give sorry one quick example. A fantastic study came out of COVID. I mean, so many great studies have come out, but this was fascinating for me, where elderly people we know are batting more with isolation because their technological skills are not as good as maybe the young generation. However, the levels of depression with um, people 65 and older have been much less um, over this time than your 18 to 24-year-olds, um, more or less that age group. And one of the reasons they're saying is that as, as the elder generation um, have got context, they have this thing, well, we got through this other stuff. They've got memory. They've got context of this too shall pass. Whereas the younger generation don't have enough of that context yet. Yet they have the skills to reduce the isolation, the technology skills. So the proposal is that we need to be having community workshops where we've got the older and younger generation helping each other, the older generation giving context and the younger generation giving technological support. And in that way, we bring communities and diverse age groups um, together to start solving this problem. Long answer. It was an amazing answer. So thank you so much for, you know, giving all those incredible insights and also giving some solutions. So I'm going to quickly just rattle off some mental health stats and then we'll kick it over to some of the other panelists. So 450 million people currently suffer from mental illness, according to the World Health Organization. One in four Americans currently suffer at least one mental illness. And that concurs with the rest of the world based on my research. Almost 1 million people die due to suicide every year. It is the third leading cause of death amongst young people. So Jonas, I know that, you know, suicide is actually a story that's close to your heart. And I'd love to hear your perspective on the state of mental illness in the world. Sure. I mean, I, I can't speak for the, the entire globe, Hala, but your context is very helpful. I think some of the driving factors and certainly one that impacted my younger brother, Ben, who took his own life in 2018, was loneliness. And what we know from leading data from companies like Cigna, is that the rate of loneliness is heightened today and that one in four people feel acutely lonely, which is the real problem. And if we think about the factors contributing to loneliness pre-pandemic, and now we think about what we do with the reality of loneliness today, with people being isolated in their homes, cut off from work, and cut off from friends in a normal, you know, regular fashion, that really weighs on our psyches. And so people are feeling extremely lonely, extremely cut off. Certainly in the U.S., things seem to be trending in the right direction. I can certainly say that, you know, for the first time, I had a meal out at a restaurant this week, believe it or not, being back in Austin. But loneliness is a real thing. It's not going away anytime soon. And while we do have social media, which theoretically connects us, certainly this is an example of that, the problem is that we're not interacting face-to-face in the real world as often as we might want to, and it certainly is impacting us negatively. I think if we think about what we do going forward and how we come out of this in a healthier way, part of this is being willing to take some risk and reinsert ourselves into the normal life, especially if we've, we've been vaccinated and we feel confident doing so. So scheduling time with our friends and sp- scheduling time with our coworkers so we can actually have that human connection. That's the piece that we're greatly lacking. And there's tons of other data that we can look at but I think you know, if we think of one in four people being impacted by either depression or anxiety acutely on any given day, 
and part of that being driven by the fact that we're so lonely and cut off, we need to rethink how we can physically interact with people. And part of the problem, I would argue, and part of the reason why I launched Lada, my new startup, is to bring people together so they can start exercising again. I think the lack of physical activity is one of the real contributing factors here. So we're isolated, we're stuck at home, staring at a screen of electrons all day. When we need to get back into our bodies and engage in some kind of aerobic activity, whether it's jogging or dancing or walking or hiking, doing something in nature that will take us out of our minds, that trap where we might feel anxious or depressed, and simply to start moving, and that will impact our health immensely. So that's one of the things I, I tell you, I, I know coming full circle, when Benny took his own life, before he had done that, one of the things that gave him a great sense of contentment in life was getting outside and exercising and hiking with other people. And that's one of the things that prolonged his life, Tala. And so that's one of the things that, you know, I think for those tuning in, I would encourage them to do more of, get outside, spend time with your friends, exercise, let the blood flow, breathe in oxygen, and don't feel trapped because you're not. There are other people around you who would really benefit from spending time with you in motion. I love that. Thank you so much, Jonas. I think that's such an interesting perspective. And I I really couldn't agree more. Like I can't wait to get back to the gym because I feel it myself that I just, I want to be able to dance and dance with other people and, and, you know, sweat and, and get those, you know, endorphins going. Um, And I think it's super important and something that we're all been missing for a long time. So Amy, I know that you conducted a study at very well. If you want to go over the results of your mental health study, that'd be great. Yeah, at Very Well Mind, we did some research. We uh, reached out to about 4,000 people in the United States to sort of get the pulse of how people are dealing with the pandemic and the aftermath and now that the restrictions are starting to lift. And what we found is that it's really the younger generation that is struggling the most. It's Gen Z who is up to about age 24 And that's the population that seems to be experiencing the most symptoms of depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal thoughts. And it seems to be that their biggest sources of stress right now are financial concerns, concerns about work. So we're looking at people who are just getting done with high school, just getting done with college. They're entering into the world and they're struggling right now. And during the pandemic, there's been so much focus on, say, their grandparents and their physical health of the older generations. But I think it's so important right now to pay attention to the mental health of the younger generations and to think more about how affected they have been by this and how this whole year is a huge proportion of their lives in comparison to, say, somebody who's 50. When you're 24 and you and weren't able to do anything for an entire year, that's a big deal. And we're seeing the aftermath of that. And I think we're going to see it for quite a while. In fact, we found that within the last two weeks, almost 30% of Americans say that they've felt down, depressed, or hopeless. 28% said that they feel bad about themselves. And 21% reported thoughts of self-harm or thoughts of suicide. And again, it was highest for uh, Gen Z Really, really interesting stuff. Okay, so to close out, just like level setting, getting the context out for everyone so everybody who's tuning in really can understand the state of mental health in the world. Kate, I would love for you to kind of close this out. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Hala. And it's so great to be on this panel with all of these wonderful mental health professionals and Yeah, I mean, just to sort of echo what everyone's saying, COVID has impacted our mental health 
in every way, personally and even professionally, there was this great um, study McKinsey did on 1,000 employers, and they found that 90% of employees reported COVID had a negative impact on their health and work performance. So we definitely know that having some mental health issues, of course, can make it hard to kind of focus at work, even if many of us are still, you know, working remote. I mean, working at Talkspace, I'm a therapist as well, so I've been seeing so many clients throughout over the course of my career, but especially here in New York City over the last year and a half. And I guess the one thing I'll sort of say to that is that I I guess really uh, so many people that kind of come to therapy feel like they have to sort of be in a crisis to seek mental health counseling or to seek psychiatry. But really mental health can be something that we, you know, look at every day. This is May, we're in mental health awareness month, but I I think we would all sort of advocate for taking care of our our mental health every day and that you don't have to wait for for sort of um, an earthquake moment in your life to seek therapy. I think that's a really great point, Kate. Thank you. And thank you to all of our amazing panelists. If you guys haven't yet, make sure you tap their bios, check them out, follow them here on Clubhouse, follow them here on Instagram. So like I said, this episode is sponsored by Talkspace. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience and numerous specialties, including depression, anxiety, relationship issues, and so much more. Join millions of users who are already feeling better with the help of Talkspace. Go to Talkspace.com and use code CLUB for a $100 off your first month of Talkspace. So we're going to keep the conversation going. And my next question is for Dr. Daniel Amen. And I want to understand how you define mental illness and what are some of the most common mental illnesses people suffer from? Well, as I said before, I'm not a fan of the term mental illness. I think it shames people. It's stigmatizing and it's wrong. There are brain health issues that steal people's minds. I have a book I wrote about this called The End of Mental Illness. People just get it when I talk about it this way, that everybody wants a better brain. Nobody wants to be called mental. So being called mental is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It shames people. Being called a brain is a good thing. Everybody wants to sort of be being called a brain. Now, if you look at, so what are the most common brain health, mental health issues people have. Number one, it's anxiety disorders. Before the pandemic, 30% of the population endorsed that they would have one of the anxiety disorders like generalized anxiety, panic disorder, OCD, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So the group of anxiety disorders are the most common. Before the pandemic, a lot of people we're suffering, that number likely doubled. The second one is depression in all of its forms. But I say depression sort of like fever, right? Doctors used to give you the diagnosis of fever. Nobody does that anymore because fever doesn't tell you what's causing it or what to do for it. I think depression is exactly the same way, but it affects a lot of people. Third are People struggle with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, also called ADD. It's the same. It's just different eras. When I trained in 1980, the DSM-3 came out and it was ADD with or without hyperactivity. 
And then the powers that be just decided to change the name in 1987 to ADHD. And then addictions are common. Insomnia and sleep issues often revolve around mental health, brain health issues, and then things like bipolar disorder, which I think is one of the current fads in psychiatry. It's like everybody sort of gets a diagnosis of bipolar too. When one of the big lessons we've learned from our database, so we have 183,000 scans We've done, at Amen Clinics, we actually think you should look at the organ you're treating before you go about messing with it. And so we do a study called SPECT. SPECT looks at blood flow and activity. It looks at how the brain works. And one of the big lessons we learned is mild traumatic brain injury ruins people's lives. And nobody knows it because they end up to see psychiatrists or psychologists who never look at the brain. And I think undiagnosed brain injuries often get diagnosed as bipolar disorder, especially bipolar too. And then of course, there are things like schizophrenia, which affects 1% of the population. But did you know that COVID is actually increasing the expression of psychotic disorders? I have about 60 COVID scans that I've seen And it's fascinating. What we've seen with people who actually get COVID is it activates their limbic or emotional centers in the brain, making them more vulnerable to being diagnosed with a psychiatric problem. Did that answer your question? Yes, 100%. It more than did. And duly noted on brain health and mental health instead of calling it mental illness. So I will make sure to try to say that for the rest of the session and make sure that I don't promote any stigmas around uh, this topic. So thank you so much for pointing that out. And uh, super interesting about the COVID insight that you just gave. That's scary for me because I got COVID. So hopefully, you know, no negative impacts here. So I'd love to kick it to Dr. Caroline Leaf. I know that, you know, you've got a lot of opinions in terms of what happens to the brain when it comes to conditions like depression. So I'd love to hear from your thoughts. What happens to us neurologically, biologically in terms of our brain when we suffer from mental health conditions? Um, thanks for that question, Hala. And yes, it's a, it's a really important question. So the way I explain things and understand it from my research, which has kind of been 38 years now, actually Daniel and I trained around the same era in the 80s, is that, and I've spent my you know, my whole career studying, looking at mind and brain and thoughts and memories and emotions and what are they and what do they look like in the brain and the mind. And what I've come to realize and understand through my research, and I still do clinical trials and things, and I practice for nearly 25 years, is that the mind is not the brain and the mind works through the brain and the brain responds to the mind. And in that process, mind drives everything. So if we are alive, our mind is active. If we did, there is no mind operating. So the fact that we can see a response in the brain and in the body, and you know, if you do a spec scan or QEEG or, or EKG or anything like that, we are seeing in a person who's alive, we are seeing that the body and brain are responding to the mind. So that's the one aspect. And I see mind as being the majority portion because mind is driving everything. Without mind, there's no bodily function. There's no brain function without that aliveness. And I explain mind as how we think, feel, and choose. And basically, on a on a quantum on a on a physics level, we can talk about electromagnetic forces and gravitational forces and things. The work done by Einstein. So it's it's old. It's old science. It's not like it's brand new science. 
but there is new science talking about the fact that we have specific gravitational fields around humans that aren't there when you are dead. So so mind is for me in that category and I believe that mind drives everything because that we see and that's not just saying I worked at a lot of work in traumatic brain injuries and CTE and Alzheimer's and autism and that kind of thing when I first started out and I was trained that the brain couldn't change. That was literally, and I challenged that, and I did some of the first neuroplasticity research back in the 80s, and I remember saying to my neuroscience professor, and in the 80s, neuroscience was really in its infancy, so we did more sort of neurology and stuff, but I remember saying that, hey, I don't agree that the brain can't change because we're always experiencing new stuff. We're never the same from moment to moment. There's always new experiences. And that stimulated a path of study where I started working with traumatic brain injury because my professor said, okay, well, see what you can do with TBI. And if you can make any changes there, then, you know, we're talking something, we're saying something. I did a TED talk on this, the ridiculous question of can the mind change the brain? And I showed that was directed mind input, you can direct the neuroplasticity of the brain and you can alter functions on a social, emotional and cognitive level. I showed a 35 to 75% improvement. I continued doing this with people with severe learning disabilities and cognitive disabilities and over the years work, I went deep into in the field research in traumatic war-torn countries like Rwanda and apartheid South Africa and three, four days a week in these environments looking at people's, the mind, the brain, the mind-brain connection, the impact, etc. And my, in my most Recent clinical trials, I showed what has been shown by demonstrated by so many studies in this field now, the direct connection between when our mind is, our minds are always a mess. Messy minds are very normal. Let me say that up front. We have a messy mind, we have a wise mind. This is the easiest way to understand this. And our messy mind is like the front line of the war. It's how you experience life. So you, right now we're all experiencing this discussion. So we're immersed in a discussion and this is electromagnetic light waves and sound waves and words and all these things that our mind is processing into our brain as a literal genetic change and we're going to literally grow dendritic branches and we're going to store these memories as little vibrations. So we're literally at the moment making microscopic changes in our brain. We've been like neurosurgeons as we're listening. We're changing. So this is a positive experience because you're learning about brain. But what happens if you've been bullied or you've been raped or you've had COVID experiences that have been negative? Those are experiences that have being built into your brain as toxic versions, so toxic thoughts. Thoughts are real things that occupy mental real estate. And they are very and so there's a very, very strong physical change in the brain. We know from research that the neurobiology of the brain and the body is literally wired for love. I'm quoting a Nobel Prize winning scientist who actually said we wire, literally wired for love. We don't have structures and, um, and parts of our brain and body that are, are wired for negativity. What we wired for is making a mess because life is experimental. We can't control events and circumstances, aka COVID. We don't know what's coming around the corner and we can't control people. So, But the only thing we can control are responses to a certain, you know, we can control how we respond. And in the moment of a trauma, you can't even control that really. You just cope and you build these thoughts into your brain and they create these, these destructive thoughts that are real physical things made of protein. And what most people don't realize is like the COVID virus activates an immune response. Um, we all know that. Um, that I mean to say, we all know that the COVID virus re- um, creates a re- immune response in the brain and the body. So the immune response is sending out B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes and macrophages and so on to the site of threat, which is the COVID virus. And it's trying to eliminate that. That's the design of our body. We all get that. But 
I don't think most people realize that a thought, which is the is made of memories, like a tree has many branches and roots. A thought has many branches and roots, which are memories. And those that's the data of the experience and the emotions and the emotional data. And that is real. It's proteins. It's in the brain. It's also in the DNA of every cell of our body. And I did work on research on telomeres, showing that the telomeres, which are the ends of chromosomes, which are a proxy for our, our, how we're managing our mind and how we're managing our responses to life, they will shorten with mismanagement or with not doing anything, just like getting stuck. And when they do, that impacts the cells that our body are making. We make about a million cells every second. And the quality of those cells will, throughout the brain and the body will then become uh, get into a vulnerable state. So over time, if we don't manage our mind, we will see the damage that Daniel's talking about in the brain. We will see that. I see that on my QEEG studies. We'll see that that there is an effect because our telomeres aren't functioning. That's just one thing. I'm just giving you one thing. There's a whole, nothing works in isolation in the brain or the body. There's a whole downward spiral effect into your hormone system, your inflammatory factors, et cetera, et cetera, which we also showed in, in my recent research, confirming other existing research. But essentially, we're going to see a response in the brain. So as we have this COVID experience and the isolation and the various different individual unique narratives each person has, that is built into the brain as a physical toxic folded protein tree with abnormality. There's, it's in our DNA changing the functioning of the, the telomeres and it's in the area of our mind as a sort of as a subatomic particle wa- waving. And these are distorted environments that are being created in our body. And we are actually built to manage quite a lot of that. We can deal with mess because we're pretty much experimenting. None of us know what's coming up. What we're not are designed to do is not manage the mess. And what we're not giving, in my opinion, what I think has been from the beginning of time, mental health has been so badly managed. And I agree with Daniel, we shouldn't be calling it mental health. I call it mind issues and the effect on the brain. So it's, you know, a similar approach. And basically, we should be getting away from the word mental, I agree. But from the beginning of time, you human, you, you're a mess. You're going to be, a, you're going to go through cycles of being up and down. And sometimes it's better than other times, but we've got to recognize that. So that mess in the, the messy environments that we live in, as a result of people's messy decisions, affect us and we affect others. And that effect is going to play out in our mind and in our brain and in our bodies. And over time, that increases vulnerability of the brain and the body to disease and changes in the brain and the body um, up to 35 to 75%. So we saw, for example, in our, in my in my recent clinical trials, we saw in my case studies, we did very, very in-depth case studies in single subject uh, within multiple different designs. And we saw that we had a lot of millennials in, in my research and we saw they were identifying literally as I am depression, like that is the identity, just like getting stuck in rumination and so on at the beginning of the study. And we looked at all kinds of things, DNA, blood work, QEG, psychology as a psychological testing narrative, their whole story, we looked at a huge amount of factors. And we found that, that people were like stuck. And what we see in a QEG, which matches with the low oxygen and blood flow and that you'll see in, for example, a spec scan, an fMRI scan, is uh, what we call a blue brain. So flat lines, so the different wave brain waves were not not rolling like they should, like, they, like the, the, roll, the waves rolling in the sea from the depths of the waves to the breakers on the beach and crashing on the beach and the little waves going back in and out. We want that kind of balance of waves across left and right side of the brain, which activates the 200 different sections of the brain which have individualized connections and that's unique to each person and we saw people that were crashing with under in the midst of all these traumas crashing and we basically introduced them to mind management 
and being able to just understand, hey, when I feel depression and anxiety, I'm not mental. I'm not broken. I don't have a neuropsychiatric brain disease. I have a response in my brain. My brain's certainly not functioning like it should. It's certainly there's inflammation. The immune system has recognized that toxic protein of that toxic sort in the same way as it's recognized the COVID protein in the COVID virus, and it's a threat to survival. So it sends out immune factors. There's inflammation at that site. Your body's trying to heal. When you don't deal with the stuff and you keep suppressing it, the inflammation increases and that increases, sets off a whole cycle of in, uh, low-grade inflammation across your brain and your body. It affects your telomeres. It affects your homocysteine, even prolactin. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on with all the tons of research in that area. So there is a response, but that's not the cause. Short TBI, traumatic brain injury, there's an injury in the brain. And I totally agree with uh, Dr. Amin, Daniel, that those that we are, that's such an under, undiagnosed area. I worked in it for years that we've got to look at if there's damage to the brain because the mind and the brain are a feedback loop. That is going to feed back into the brain. My TBI patients really, really battle with emotional status too. But once I train them in their mind and how to manage their mind and how to build their brain, I do a ton of brain building in the work that I do, which is literally regrowing areas of the brain in a really fun way. We saw massive changes in brain function. In those days, I used CT scans. But we saw changes in the behavior, cognitive, social, emotional. So in sum and in closing, mind changes brain and brain influences mind. And we and we will see the impact. But when we change our mind, we can also change our brain. But that's not being taught. It's hard. It's hard work. But we are able to do that, which is what's so powerful. I, so there we go. Paula? Yes. Yeah, no, I didn't want to interrupt, but it's Dr. Robin here. I just wanted to say something as I'm listening to all of this. And I think it's important as we are talking about the brain and the mind to remember that there are many people in this room right now who are not necessarily trained experts and they may not know all of the technical terms that some of us are aware of, but what they do know is they know suffering and they know joy. And I think it's really important that for me, the themes of what we're talking about, each of us in different ways, using different examples and different research and studies, is to really talk about normalizing not pathologizing. So to normalize struggle, to normalize suffering, to normalize the ways in which we are all trying to make meaning out of very challenging and difficult situations and circumstances and relationships. And I think that when we have an appointment with someone, and maybe it's, you know, for the dentist, and we might say to someone, oh, I need to, you know, get off this call. I'm, I have to get to the dentist. Um, you know, I'm getting my teeth cleaned or I'm going to, you know, get my eyes examined. We don't feel that same kind of comfort because we've not had good role modeling and not good examples around what it means. And that's why what Dr. Amen is talking about is really so very, very important to understand the difference, and you know from you know talking with me that I don't use the word mental illness because I think it not only does it uh, mislead people and shame people, it also is such a hopeless term, and it can make people feel 
helpless as well. But if we have more examples of people who say, I have to go right now because I have, you know, my partner and I have couples therapy or my children and I have therapy, that it's so important that we teach by what we are actually doing ourselves as healers. So I'm I'm talking about, you know, where have each of us done the work, done the work of the soul, done the work of the brain? You know, I think as Dr. Amen is talking, um, and I'm so familiar, you know, with your work and um, have great respect for, you know, what you have created and seeded into the world. One of the things that is so important about the brain, we think of brainwashing as being negative, you know, that someone has brainwashed you. We don't think about how important it can be and helpful to find ways of washing the brain from toxic and destructive and limiting beliefs about the self and about others. And so this invitation tonight, as I see it, for all of us healers and those who are in the room, is to feel encouraged tonight, to feel inspired. And I would say not just tonight, because we know that there are people from all over the world. So there are people where it is morning already. And that there is such great hope and opportunity, very concrete opportunity for the ways in which we've normalized suffering and thought that there was no way out. And to realize that Dr. Uh, Caroline was saying that it's hard work. It is hard work. But I always tell people that it is also very hard, painful work to remain defeated and suffering. It's just that we are more familiar with that than we are at being liberated. And so I just am inviting each of us to feel the hope in what everyone is talking about tonight for your individual life and circumstance. And so, you know, whether you understand all of the statistics and all of the language, know this and don't miss this, you who are here in the room. And and I think it's, uh, is it Jonah who was, uh, Jonas, who was sharing about your brother who died by suicide. I mean, even that, you know, I don't use the word committed suicide because that is as if it were a crime. And so, Jonas, I so appreciate the invitation that you're putting in front of all of us. I call it the three Bs, which is to move your body, move your brain, and then move your burden. So I'm just, you know, I'm grateful that we gathered tonight and hope that each of us in the room is applying this to how it impacts us individually, the people in our homes, and then, of course, collectively as a tribe and village in the world. What's up, Yap Bam? Being an entrepreneur and working remotely definitely has its perks. And I know a lot of you listening in are in the same boat as me. But do you really take advantage of being able to work from anywhere? I know I typically don't, but thankfully this past holiday, I finally decided to make use of my work flexibility for the first time ever. My boyfriend and I decided to pack up and leave to the West Coast to spend an entire month working from home in the sun. We got a super cute bungalow in Venice Beach with a fenced backyard. 
The change in scenery, the fresh air, and the slower pace to help me to inspire some really cool new ideas for my business. And honestly, I'm feeling really refreshed and ready to rock in 2024. And who helped me make these remote work dreams come true? It was Airbnb. And Airbnb has come in clutch for me time and time again. Whether it's finding the perfect Airbnb home for our three-day annual executive team get-together or booking a vacation where my extended family can fit all in one place, Airbnb always makes it a great experience. And you know me, I'm always thinking of my latest business venture and I've been begging my boyfriend to start hosting our place on Airbnb. And finally, we're gonna start. So many of my successful friends host on Airbnb and it's such an amazing way to generate passive income. So to start, we have a plan to start spending more time in Miami and we'll be hosting our place to earn some extra money when we're back on the East Coast. 2024 goals and I'll keep you updated. A lot of people don't realize that they might have an Airbnb right under their own noses. I was pretty surprised myself. You can Airbnb your place or spare room even if you're out of town for just a few days or weeks. You could do what I did and work remotely somewhere else and Airbnb your place to fund your trip. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host to find out how much your home is worth. Yeah, fam, I wanna talk about focus. When I started my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass, I needed to focus on creating the best course possible. I didn't have time to worry about how to set up my website and collect payments. And that's why I set up my store on Shopify. Launching App Academy through Shopify was one of the best decisions I've ever made. We made nearly $500,000 so far. And since I sell a course, that's pretty much pure profit. Are you ready to be young and profiting too? Then launch your business with Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you're a side hustler, new entrepreneur, or rocking a multi-million dollar business. And it doesn't matter if you're selling scented soap or a marketing masterclass like me. Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. And when it comes to e-commerce, Shopify turns online window shoppers into actual buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. We're talking 36% better on average compared to other platforms with features like abandoned cart campaigns, discount promo codes, and so much more. Fun fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, including huge brands like Thrive Cosmetics and Allbirds. No matter your stage, no matter if it's online or in person, Shopify is always the right commerce platform for you. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting, and that's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. Yeah, fam, I did a big thing recently. I rolled out benefits to my U.S. employees. They now get healthcare and 401ks. And maybe this doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but it was surely a big deal to me because benefits were like the boogeyman to me. I thought for sure we couldn't afford it. I thought that it was gonna be so complicated, so hard to set up, lots of risk involved. And in fact, so many of my star employees have left in the past citing benefits as the only reason why. And here I was thinking that we couldn't afford benefits when it's literally not that expensive at all and you actually split the cost between the employee and the employer. I had no idea. I found out on JustWorks. JustWorks has been a total lifesaver for me. We were using two other platforms for payroll, one for domestic in US, one for international. 
We had our HR guidelines and things like that, employee handbook on another site, and everything was just everywhere. Now everything's consolidated with JustWorks, a tried and tested employee management platform. You get automated payments, tax calculations, and withholdings with expert support anytime you need it. And on top of that, there's no hidden fees. You can leave all the boring stuff to JustWorks and just get to business. And with automatic time tracking, it has made managing my international hires a little bit more soothing for my soul that I know that they're actually working and they're tracking their time. I mean, it's really hard to manage remote employees. It's easy to get started right away. All you need is 30 minutes. You don't even have to be in front of your computer. You can just get started right on your phone. Take advantage of this limited time offer. Start your free month now at justworks.com slash profiting. Let JustWorks run your payroll so you don't have to. Start your free month now at justworks.com slash profiting. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Caroline, for, you know, all of your insight in terms of the mind and the brain and how they're different and how they relate. If you guys are interested in that, go check out episode number 114. I had Dr. Caroline on my show and Dr. Robin, amazing, inspirational information for everybody tuning in. You always are inspiring and motivating and and thank you so much for that as well. So I saw Dr. Carlene was flashing her mic. So I'd like to throw it to her to hear uh, what she has to say about this topic. Yes, thank you, Holla. So this is Dr. Carlene. And, you know, I do think that all of us on the stage uh, share an appreciation for wanting to be careful with the language that we use and wanting to reduce stigma. I think I do offer a little bit of a different angle on some of the terms like mental illness. So I do use that term as a psychiatrist, but I say things like living with bipolar disorder or living with borderline personality disorder rather than saying, you know, this person is a schizophrenic or this person is a borderline. I think that's the type of language that really can be quite dehumanizing. But I do think that for a number of individuals, those terms can be organizing and they can help people make sense of things that are not. And so if that type of language, like bipolar disorder, is working for someone, I believe it's appropriate to use it. It's just that we should say living with. Um, And I think that can still be quite a hopeful message for someone. You know, I know myself have a history of depression and go to treatment for it. I don't have a problem saying that. My husband here on the stage is very open about his bipolar disorder and calls it that. But he is not bipolar disorder, right? That is just one facet of who he is. So I do think that when we look at people, we should look at kind of the whole the whole person and really figure out what language works for them so that they can understand themselves. This is Dr. Carlene and I'm done speaking. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think the whole purpose of a panel is to have alternate perspectives and, you know, just share information and everybody who's tuning in can kind of make their own decisions about how they want to approach the situation. So thank you. I saw Kate, you want to flash your mic? What do you have to say? Yeah, thank you, Hala. This is Kate from Talkspace. And I do just want to share also that when we talk about mental health, it's important to sort of note that we can also look to nutrition to optimize our brain health and our mental well-being. I know that, you know, when our brains don't get enough of the nutrients we need, our thoughts, our feelings, everything is really impacted. Like, for example, serotonin, um, which is this neurotransmitter linked to mood, if we don't have enough specific nutrients like iron or B12, our bodies just can't even provide enough serotonin. So what I, I really want to say, and you know, in some of my work with Talkspace clients as a therapist, I definitely encourage clients who are, who are 
just like struggling right now. Um, to, I, I just asked them, you know, when was the last time you got lab work done and, and to definitely talk with, um, you know, a, a primary care doctor or, or prescriber about just sort of what these labs show and if there's any deficiencies, um, that can definitely be, I guess, something worth looking into. So I just wanted to share that for anyone out here as well. Um, if you're working with a, a healthcare provider, it could be something to talk with them about. Yeah, 100%. I think nutrition is definitely key when it comes to your body and brain health. So I think that's a great point. So we're going to continue this conversation and I want to pivot back to COVID. So COVID for a lot of you guys on the panel do know me uh, pretty well. And a lot of you guys, we haven't met before. You might be coming on my show in the future, but we really haven't gotten a chance to talk. And if you do know me, you probably know that my father passed away from COVID last May and I got actually his anniversary was of his passing was this past Saturday, a one year anniversary. And I caught COVID because I was taking care of him and my whole family got sick. And we are one of the first families I feel like that I knew at least and all my friends knew in, in New Jersey who got impacted. I feel like I was like one of the first families that got impacted. So it was a really scary time. And I'm not alone. There's so many people who have suffered from grief. 3 million lost souls all over the world. And to make matters worse, not only losing someone, but then not being able to visit them in the hospital for me was really traumatic. And I just want to talk about grief. And I know that Amy, Dr. Robin, I'm sure other of you guys on the panel talk about grief and how to overcome trauma. I'd like to pivot to Amy. I know you talk about this quite a lot. Can you explain the difference between healthy grief and unhealthy self-pity and kind of what you recommend that we do for those of us who are suffering from grief due to COVID and due to any, any reasons that we would suffer grief? Absolutely. So my experience with grief is not just as a therapist, but it's also personal. I lost my mom uh, when I was 23. And then when I was 26, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And shortly after that, I lost my father-in-law and realized quickly that knowing about grief is one thing, but going through the emotions and the pain is just uh, having the head knowledge doesn't always do it. It's one of those things that we tend to try to go around the pain because we don't want to go through it. But grief is the process by which we heal and you have to go through the pain. And But that doesn't mean that we have to do it alone. Support is so important when we're grieving and just being able to reach out to other people who can understand our pain can go a long way toward helping us heal. And it's about knowing that there's no timeline for grief that's so often people will think you should feel better in six months or there's the magical one year mark, but that's not the case. And that grief often comes in waves. You might be fine one minute and the next minute you're in the grocery store looking at something that reminds you of your loved one and you might suddenly burst into tears. And, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you haven't healed or that you aren't grieving the right way. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. But people are really uncomfortable with our sadness. You might find that your friends and family don't know what to say or they try to cheer you up, which goes back to why it's just so important to have support from other people who understand what it's like to be grieving a, a loved one. And as you said, Hala, the anniversaries can be tough. Uh, the anniversary of the day that you lost someone, their birthdays, there's so many dates, seasons, times of year that might bring things up for you, uh, certain holidays. And for us to just be aware of that and to know that it's it's okay to ask for help, it's important to talk to people and really pay attention to, to our emotions. There's so much power in just naming how you're feeling and to not judge yourself for those emotions. So whether you feel 
guilty, you feel incredible pain and sadness, or you feel intense anxiety, just taking some time and honoring and noticing those feelings goes a long way towards helping us feel better. And then knowing that it's okay to feel those things, but also you don't want to stay stuck in a place of pain. And that it's important to have healthy coping strategies, which could be anything from knitting to exercising to painting, just knowing what kinds of things help me express experience and cope with these difficult feelings that I have. Thank you so much, Amy. I think that was super insightful. And I saw Jonas flashing his mic and then I want to pass it to to Jonas and then Nitty because I, Nitty, I know you talk a lot about trauma in your mental health club. So just to pick up on Amy's point, I think it's really important that we do acknowledge that we are collectively in a state of great grief right now relating to COVID and how I feel for you and your family immensely. And I will say my own father passed last spring as well, as did my father-in-law in the summer. And so as a family, we're coping with that. And it really helps to be able to be open about it, about the range of emotions you're feeling related to the loss that you might be experiencing. And even if you haven't lost someone to COVID, you know, perhaps you're just dealing with this feeling of being isolated, as we talked about earlier, and feeling lonely. And those are all real. So it's good to be vulnerable about it. I think it's important to find peers that you can trust and have this conversation with. I think this is a really big piece of the self-care journey. And one word that Dr. Robin shared is the word encouragement. And within that word is the word courage. And so what I want to impress upon everybody here is that healing takes courage and that we're all human and we're all experiencing this in different levels of intensity. And so, you know, be courageous and be willing to be honest about where you are in terms of your mental health. And once you do that, acknowledge it, it really gets a lot easier because the weight is lifted and you can start building the coping skills and you can seek the support you need, whether it's with Talkspace or whether it's a, a group of peers. And so I'll leave it at that, Holly, and turn it back over to the floor. Thank you. Okay, so let's kick it over to Nitty and then Dr. Robin. Thanks, Hala. This is Nitty speaking. You know, I loved that, Amy, you and Jonas, um, and Hala, I wanted to thank you also for vulnerably sharing about your own grief and loss journey, that there is a collective grief experience that we all have been navigating. And I do a lot of work with individuals who are survivors of trauma. And when I mention that word trauma, I think so many people think, oh, I've never, I've never had a traumatic experience. You know, I've never gone through war or a natural disaster. And so I don't have trauma. But we have to start broadening the lens of what we consider to be traumatic. That trauma is really anything that is too much, too fast, or too soon for the nervous system to handle. And when we're thinking about this in the context of this pandemic, that is all of the above, right? We had moments of grief and loss where we couldn't actually mourn the loss with our families. We couldn't reach out to support and and hug and have physical touch and attachment and connection to people. And so, you know, it takes a, a situation where grief is normally difficult and complicates it by adding in these additional factors. And so I think that if people are able to kind of look at some of those experiences in their lives, things like bullying and divorce, grief and loss, all of these things being considered potentially traumatic, depending on how you experienced it, I think that perhaps then there would be more of an acknowledgement when the symptoms start to show up, right? Things like feeling on edge or feeling really shut down, 
having difficulty with sleep and appetite, dreams, nightmares, and avoidance of certain triggers that may bring up the memories of those traumatic experiences. So I just wanted to add that into this conversation that, you know, what we're all describing is absolutely grief and loss. And for many people, it was experienced as a traumatic experience. And there was actually quite a few research studies done in 2020 and 2021 about COVID-19. And while people didn't necessarily meet the DSM-5 criteria for PTSD, they checked off actually quite a few of the boxes that typically go alongside that diagnosis. And so what that showed us is that these trauma-related symptoms still can occur, even if you didn't directly experience COVID, you watched it through the media or experienced you know, the fear and hypervigilance that we all went through over the last year and a half, or if you truly got it yourself or had somebody else who passed away, that many people still had those trauma-related symptoms show up in their lives. So yeah, I think it's uh, had a widespread impact and we're going to see more and more of the ripple effect from the last year and a half or so in the coming years ahead. Yeah, 100%. And Dr. Robin, you are known as being the trauma surgeon of the heart and soul. So I'd love your thoughts on all the grief that's going on and, and what we can do to overcome it. Yeah, thanks, Hala. And for, you know, Amy sharing and uh, Jonas and Nitty, I mean, it's um, those of us who have known sorrow in our own lives. I mean, when I was listening, Amy, to your story and the cascading losses that hit your life and I've had some of that in my own life years ago. I, my significant other, we were in the Caribbean and all was well, and then all was not well. Um, he collapsed a cardiac arrest on the beach and died. And it's a long story, a very, very tragic um, story, young life and my young life being very altered. My mother died last May, not quite a year ago, but it will be, not from COVID last year, but somewhat unexpectedly, she had lived an extraordinarily great life. And she very quietly in her own home dies very peacefully. We happened to be there. So that part of it was sweet. And COVID was happening. So this woman who lived this amazing kind of rock star life, we were trying to figure out, you know, what 10 people would be allowed, I'm in the Philadelphia area, to come to her service. Um, and so one of the things when I think about trauma and what I know about grief and loss and trauma is that a part of what makes it even more difficult, and Amy was talking about this, are the rules and let's call the regulations that other people or we ourselves try to abide by. So we have a timeline or our job has a timeline or we read somebody's book that talked about you know, a timeline and how they went back to work or they started dating or after six months or, you know, a year and a half. And so you figure, okay, if I'm, you know, if I'm okay, then I can do that as well. And so one of the things that is so important as it relates to COVID, but just grief and loss in general, is that there really are not any rules other than what your own heart dictates in terms of what it needs and a lot of that requires slowing down. I mean, slowing down even right here, right now in this room and asking yourself this very bold and brave question, which is what 
does my ache need? Rumi, the great you know, writer and thinker and philosopher, um, has a quote that I love, and I think it fits so well here, that the wound, W-O-U-N-D, the wound is the place where light enters. And so often, We are covering our wounds up and we're ashamed of our wounds and we're trying to get our wounds, you know, into gear. You know, people will, if you hear when I do, you know, my clubhouse events um, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the East, people often will call and if they begin to cry, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. And I'll say, what are you sorry for? And isn't it interesting that when we, when our tears show up, and I believe our tears are our teacher, that we apologize for our humanity. So a piece of what this moment is offering is that we really lean, and I mean lean all the way in to what it means to be fully human, and that is to have losses. And, you know, as we've heard each person share that sometimes it's the birthday or the anniversary, but sometimes it's not connected to anything in particular, except for that your heart aches. Or how about the times where someone feels joy and then they feel guilty? Like, am I allowed to smile? Am I allowed to ever laugh again after, you know, the death and the loss of someone who suffered and died alone in COVID, when we think about what happened to, you know, so many people in COVID, and how I know you've shared about this, people who had to say goodbye to their loved ones over a device, over FaceTime, and where physicians were serving as priests and rabbis simply because family members could not, were not allowed into the hospital. So there is not only the grief of death, but there's the grief of all of our rituals that helped us celebrate. People that had babies were really excited until COVID showed up. And here, all of a sudden, they were going to have maybe their first child. Someone who works as part of my team was going to have her first child. And there were all these plans. And then maybe her husband couldn't even come into the hospital with her. And her mother was not allowed to come to her city. And so we really want to look at the fact that COVID, and I want to also bring up what is happening in the United States around race and that Black people, Black and brown people in particular, have been killed, have been murdered. And so that issue is also something, as we talk about what has just hit us and hurt us and injured us, mind, body, and soul, that we're looking at not just COVID-19, but we're looking at a country here in the U.S. that is very, very confused about what it means to be our brother and our sister's keeper. And so I hope that as we talk about, you know, grief and loss and trauma and the hope that is possible, that we realize that sometimes we have um, a friend who really um, can walk with us or family. But I want to caution all of us and those who are suffering tonight with grief and loss and trauma. You know, you may have thought that 
you know, your best friend is going to always be there and understand. And every time you talk to him or every time you talk to her, you leave feeling disappointed, like they didn't get it. You know, they didn't get it or my sister's not getting it. And so what I really want to encourage you to do is pay attention to that part of you that feels that somebody is missing your grief and sorrow because it's sacred and you don't want to share it with anyone who isn't able or willing or doesn't have the capacity to hold it and hold you in ways that really are constructive and nurturing and soft and tender in such a tough time. So don't grandfather uh, your family or grandmother so that we are gender sensitive. Don't grandfather anyone into being close to you unless they have earned the right to walk with you and next to you. That was beautiful, Dr. Robin. Thank you so much for your thoughts. I'm going to pivot to Dr. Daniel Amen. So we're in a back channel and Dr. Daniel Amen just mentioned that he actually lost his father on May 5th. So 10 days before mine and he had a virtual funeral. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and also about mental discipline. If you can define that for everyone and tell us why it's so important. Well, it's really mental discipline that helped me get through his loss. I had a hard relationship with my dad. When I told him I wanted to be a psychiatrist in 1979, he asked me why I didn't want to be a real doctor, why I wanted to be a nut doctor and hang out with nuts all day long. So he's a Middle Eastern father who was hard. And the last five years of his life, though, he was my best friend. He had a health challenge, never listened to me. And when he listened to me, he lost 40 pounds, helped his heart heal, and we became super close. So his death was very hard for me. But what I talk to my patients about is mental discipline needs to be the same as physical discipline. That if you want a healthy body, you have to make thousands of decisions over and over and over again. You cannot be 50 pounds overweight on Monday. Have a salad for lunch and expect to be trim on Friday, right? That's insane. You need habits that you put in your life every day that help you. And I have a new book out called Your Brain is Always Listening. I talk about something called positivity bias training. So many of my patients who struggle with anxiety, depression, trauma, grief, who have high ACE scores, and it would be good for us to talk about the ACE test, which is adverse childhood experiences, because people who score it scored on a scale of zero to 10, and people who score over four die earlier than people who are under four. They have an increased risk for seven of the top 10 leading causes of death. And my wife has a score of eight. My nieces who we adopted both have nines. And so that trains your nervous system to be hypervigilant and to always watch for bad things to happen. But my wife and my nieces who live with me are all doing awesome. 
because we work on mental discipline. So I start every day with today is going to be a great day. Soon as my feet hit the floor. And if I forget, it's on the top of my to-do list. That way, my unconscious mind will start finding what I'm looking forward to today, hanging out with my friends and doing this tonight, um, rather than just what the brain naturally does is look for what's a threat, what's wrong, especially if you grew up in trauma. As I go through my day, I go, is this good for my brain or bad for it? Which is actually the mother tiny habit. It's the most important tiny habit you can do because if you love your brain, you start making better decisions for it. And before I go to bed at night, I always put myself to sleep with a prayer. And then I go, what went well today? And I've been doing this for years. And the day my dad died was an awful day. I was actually in my bathroom getting ready to take him to the pulmonologist because he just wasn't getting better from COVID. And he'd been two months since he had it. And then I got a call from my mom. You know, it's like a nightmare that he stopped breathing. What does she do? She's on the phone. I'm calling 911, driving to the... I mean, it was a mess. And so when I went to bed that night, because it is my habit, I said a prayer, and then I went, what went well today? And then the supervising part of me, you know, I always have this great technique I learned from my friend Stephen Hayes, give your mind a name. So you can psychologically distance from it. Well, my mind is named after my pet raccoon when I was 16. Her name was Hermie. Well, Hermie starts like yelling at me, like you're a bad son because you're going to go really on the worst day of your life in 38 years. You're going to go, what went well today? Right. So the critical part of my mind is getting after me. But because it's my habit. I remembered the interaction between my mother and the police officer. I'm doing a program with the Newport Beach Police Department. So he was actually one of my students. Officer Darling shows up and he's like, Mrs. Amon, because someone died at home, we have to do an investigation. And my mom, in this intense grief, looks at him and says, do you think I was cheating on him? Do you think I had him killed? And it was hysterical to just how she could sort of separate herself from the moment and make light of it. And then I just remembered the hundreds of texts I got from my friends. Because when you're from a big Lebanese family, everybody knows something good or bad happens literally within three minutes. And um, there was just such an outpouring of love for my dad and for me. And then my brain went to... Before the mortuary took him away, I sat with him and just held his hand. And it was just so soft. And then I went to sleep because mental wellness is a practice. It's not something, and, you know, we actually have, right now we have a 30-day happiness challenge. So people can sign up for it. It's free, 30dayhappinesschallenge.com. And What we do is just these little tiny habits to put in your life to optimize your brain, your mind, your relationships, and your soul 
which is ultimately why do you care, living each day with purpose. And we need to talk about this just like people talk about losing weight or getting cardiovascularly fit. And it's a new direction, right? I'm not treating your depression. I'm optimizing your brain. I'm optimizing your mind. I'm optimizing your relationships and ultimately your deepest sense of meaning and purpose. So I hope that's helpful. This episode of Yap is sponsored by Olay Body. Guys, I know most of you are still working from home right now. And I want to stress that you cannot skip your morning shower, even though sometimes it's tempting to wait until later in the day. Morning showers are super important. If I don't take a shower in the morning, I feel sluggish and unmotivated all day. Showering is much more than just getting clean for me. It means taking care of my body while also promoting self-love. It gives me confidence and the energy I need to seize the day. And now my showers are even better since Olay just launched a new collection of skincare-inspired body washes that include premium skincare ingredients. I personally love Olay's soothing body wash with vitamin B3 complex and oat extract, which is perfect for eczema-prone skin. It transforms skin from dry, cracked, and rough to visibly healthy, strong, and plump. Fun fact, I only use fragrance-free products. I personally get really bad headaches from fragrance, and I find that using fragrance-free products keeps my skin super young and tight. I've been using Olay products since high school, and I love their fragrance-free products. Olay's Soothing Body Wash with Vitamin B3 Complex and Oat Extract is completely 100% fragrance-free, which is very hard to find, and now I'm hooked. And while it's super moisturizing, it doesn't leave a filmy residue like other soaps, and it lathers up super nice. You need to give these Olay body washes a try. They completely changed how I thought about my body care routine and my shower. You can find Olay body care products in the store or online. Olay Body, fearless in my skin. This episode of Yap is sponsored by Talkspace. Mental Health Awareness Month is a worthy thing to celebrate, but it shouldn't just be our focus for May. It's important to be working on your mental health all year long, and the positive effects of therapy can create lasting changes in all areas of your life, from your relationships to your career to your overall happiness. A therapist can help you identify the habits and the patterns that might be holding you back and how to move forward in the right direction. I sincerely recommend Talkspace for Therapy. You can sign up online and start therapy the same day that you sign up. Your secure and private Talkspace room is available 24-7, so you never have to wait to share what's on your mind. Message your therapist whenever something comes up, whether you're commuting, at work, or lying in bed, and you can schedule live video sessions from the comfort of your home. As you guys are going to hear in this episode, one of the main reasons people don't get therapy is because of the cost. But Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy, and one of their main missions is to make therapy accessible for all. And they have thousands of licensed therapists with so many different specialties like depression, anxiety, substance abuse, trauma, relationship issues, food and eating, and so much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and use code CLUB to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's code CLUB and Talkspace.com for $100 off your first month. 
I love actionable advice on Young and Profiting podcast. So learning from your personal experience and how you dealt with your father's death through mental discipline is, is so interesting to learn about. So Kate, I know that you have a few things to add on this topic. What do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm just sort of sitting here nodding along and my my heart just really goes out to you. And I think you just you know, when you're talking about mental discipline, that that's something that I talk about with my patients all the time here at Talkspace. And and that's like when we're trying to make those, you know, like, I guess, changes to, I guess, change any sort of mental health behavior. I, I talk with them about kind of making these almost like one degree turns. There's this great uh, neuropsychiatrist who talks about that in, in one degree turns, meaning like, what is, what is like a really small thing that you can do? Sort of like what you were saying, Daniel, of like saying one mantra to yourself when you wake up in the morning and, and when you go to bed, like those small changes can really add up over time to actual habits, you know, and, and that can be so supportive of our mental health when we're sort of promoting our brain health. And again, not to mention everything I mentioned earlier today about really looking to nutrition to optimize our brain health and mental well-being as well. But yeah, I think just wanted to really emphasize the importance of, of mental fitness and mental discipline and, and just how much these sort of like one degree turns can, can take us in the direction we want to go. Awesome. Thank you, Kate. So the next topic I want to talk about is a little controversial and it's on the topic of medication and psychedelics, because I think there's a couple schools of thoughts when it comes to this. Dr. Caroline, I know that you have a strong stance on this topic. And I also know that Dr. Carlene and Dr. Owen are proponents of psychedelics. So why don't we start with Dr. Owen? We didn't really hear much from you. What is your stance on psychedelics and how have you used psychedelics in this space? And what are your thoughts on that? You know, it, it's not, I think, just psychedelics we're talking about. It's effective interventions in psychiatry for 30 years. And this is quoting my friend Dan Carlin, who's now the chief medical officer at MindMed. When he was working at Pfizer, they worshipped at the altar of 50% better, right? And so the standard by which all of our SSRIs and other antidepressants, for example, are judged is a 50% reduction in symptoms, now, I have very few patients who come to me and say, I'd like to feel halfway better. Um, but <laughs> most of them want to be in remission. They don't want to be suffering tremendously, which people who are coming to me are on average. And so when we're thinking about psychedelic medicines, we're not talking about getting high and going to a fish concert. That's a different intention. We're talking about evidence-based treatments and the studies that have been coming out are remarkable. So for example, MAPS came out with a study just last week on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, which, by the way, the Cochrane review of all the prior available treatments only has venlafaxine as an effective treatment for. That is accepting, of course, for psychotherapy like Nitty does with EMDR and other modalities. But not everyone can tolerate those therapies. The dropout rates are very high. We had an effect size of, you know, above 0.9. That's better than any medication for any condition in all of psychiatry with the exception of, you know, stimulants and ADHD. So we're talking about an order of magnitude difference in how potent these interventions can be. And so I think the only controversy in my mind is like, how are we going to deploy these at scale? And how are we going to get them paid for so people have access to them and not just the wealthy 
right? People who desperately need these treatments because as Nitty can talk about, adverse childhood experiences are extremely common, especially among kids who I was seeing when I worked at Bellevue and in the state hospital system. And they're the kinds of people who are going to need interventions that work. And I think that's what psychedelics, I hope, will prove to be. Interesting. Dr. Daniel Amen, do you have any alternate thoughts on this? Or, or Nitty, do you want to chime in? Well, I'm hopeful. But, you know, people were super hopeful about cocaine. And Freud used cocaine. And they were super hopeful about opiates. And I'm hopeful. And I want to see more research. I have actually done some before and after studies with Ibogaine which is a psychedelic. And for some people, it was really helpful. For other people, it wasn't. And it seemed to really drop the function in their brain. So lots of people are getting on the bandwagon. I just want to see more research on large groups of people. But, you know, whatever we use, I'm a huge fan of plant medicine. I own a supplement company. I love saffron. Saffron head-to-head against Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Effexor, Amipramine was shown to be equally effective. Dr. Owen pointed it out, right? Equally effective may not be that effective. What we're not talking about, although one of us mentioned it earlier, is why aren't we doing like the really simple things first, like diet? And exercise. I mean, exercise head to head against Prozac and Zoloft was found to be equally effective. Exercise, fish oil, um, great nutrients. Let's start there, learning, teaching people on scale not to believe every stupid thing they think. I call it killing the ants, the automatic negative thoughts. And once you've done those things, once you've really worked to optimize your brain, your mind, your relationships, your purpose, and you're still suffering, then medication and perhaps TMS can be really helpful. I'm a huge fan of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And, you know, my experience with psychedelics and my patients it's not as effective as I would like. I mean, I have great success stories with ketamine, but it seems like about 20% of people I've sent for ketamine get a lasting positive response. So I, I think we should all be scientists. And what that means is we should all be curious. Being scientific doesn't mean diminishing other people and dismissing other things. Being scientific just means I'm curious. Show me the evidence and let me test it for myself. Thank you so much, Dr. Daniel. That was super great insights. It looks like Jonas has something to add. Jonas, I'll kick it over to you. Great. Thanks, Hala. I want to build on what Daniel was speaking to and Owen as well. And Yidi, look, I think the evidence overwhelmingly is positive and I think it's good to be cautiously optimistic. I also think it's very clear that directionally we are on the verge of a new frontier in terms of revolutionary approaches to integrating plant-based healing modalities. And clearly part of that is going to be by leveraging psychedelics. There's no question about it. The research is there, but we definitely need to figure out how to scale it and how to scale it safely. But I also want to say this, that 
the healing journey is, is you know, we can look at the, the data and that's objective, but it's also very subjective. And that the pieces that we're talking about here are really mapping to an integrative approach to a lifestyle that is based on health and wellness and well-being. And it is optimizing how we orient to the possibilities that are low cost and accessible to everyone. So talk therapy, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, that is certainly one path. Nutritional well-being and making better choices about what we put into our body such that we can function at a higher level is critically important. Exercise, you know, the big, my big premise, and one of the things I'm focused on in my new book is this idea that, you know, we have to do things that actually move us. And the movement itself will drive us toward health, physically, mentally, emotionally, in terms of resilience and so forth. But all of these things, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, relational, nutritional, spiritual, they all tie into our integrative whole as a human. And so I think for those who are, you know, again, listening in and in despair, please know that, you know, you have to look at your life as a whole spectrum and you are by no means, uh, your identity is tied to the affliction that you're dealing with, whether it's anxiety or depression or poor diet. You know, so please be mindful that and know that that you can change and that the, the opportunity for you to change is, it can be very, very simple. And it could start with just getting a good night's sleep. Thank you, Jonas. Okay, so we're going to start transitioning to the Q&A, guys. Uh, I have a bunch of people on stage already who have their questions that we're going to kick it over to before one final uh, question. So the last question is about obstacles. So Jonas alluded to it just now in terms of people not being able to afford services that they need. And the World Health Organization estimates that two-thirds of individuals suffering from mental illness choose to avoid seeking help for their conditions. And that's based on a couple of factors, including but not limited to the stigma that is associated with mental health, which we've been talking about all night, the lack of education around mental health, the expensive healthcare costs. So I want to know from your perspective, how can we overcome these types of obstacles so that we can start to see an improvement in the mental health in society? So let's kick it over to Nitty first and anybody else who wants to chime in, uh, flash your mic. Yeah, I think that this is such an important question, Hala, you know, that mental health stigma is something that is absolutely still pervasive in our society. And I think it's a multifaceted problem. I think it depends on the messaging that we received from our family system and our communities regarding what it means to perhaps struggle with our mental health and, and brain health from time to time. Were we told that emotion expression was a form of weakness, was talking about problems something that was discouraged, and therefore we may not see the value in talking out those problems and challenges with a therapist, right? So I think that that is one component of it. But then I also think there's a cultural component of it as well. You know, certain cultures may not look as at mental health as something to be considered at the same level as physical health. So we're looking at uh, treating people in a cultural context. And then lastly, I do think that media plays a role in uh, stigma, right? So for example, there have been multiple movies made about dissociative identity disorder that depict violent parts of self and people that are just, uh, you know, that really harm others as a result of being diagnosed with that condition. And, and as somebody who works so often with individuals with that diagnosis that have complex trauma, I can tell you that that is so far from the reality of individuals that are coping with that diagnosis. So in terms of being able to overcome and break that stigma, I think that one, discussions like this 
help to normalize the conversation. I think that we have to look at the fact that everyone at some point in time is going to go through a difficult, challenging circumstance and your mental health and well-being may be affected by that circumstance. And so being able to recognize one, we're not alone and that two, there's support out there and there's value to seeking out that support. You know, I think one of the most hopeful messages and one of the most researched, um, you know, most highly researched topics in the mental health field in recent years is the idea of neuroplasticity. And it's the idea that our brains are malleable, that we can still heal and change some of these internal patterns, these memory networks, these experiences that have been stored a certain way in the brain and body that there's an opportunity to be able to overcome and heal and move through those experiences. And for other types of mental health diagnoses, that there's an opportunity to manage them differently so that they're not impeding or functioning to the same degree. So I think it's a multifaceted problem that requires a multi-layered approach. And I think, Hala, you hosting conversations like this is such a critical component of that. So I thank you for that. Of course. So we're going to move on to the Q&A portion of this conversation. Really excited to have a lot of different people from the audience come up on stage. And I'm going to start off with Katie. So Katie, you have a question for Dr. Amen. Please unmute yourself and ask your question. Great. Thank you. Uh, yes, I do have a question for Dr. Amen. In your use of spec scans, what is it that you can primarily use them for to be able to diagnose or look at people with brain injuries, with TBI and depression? What does it help give you as a tool to help with the diagnosis and the recovery process? Well, thank you so much for the question. Yes. SPECT is a nuclear medicine study that looks at blood flow and activity. It looks at how the brain works. And it basically shows us three things. Healthy activity too little or too much. And then our job is to balance it. And I often say, how do you know unless you look? That making diagnoses based on symptom clusters with no biological data is how they diagnosed Lincoln with depression in 1840. It's got to change. And we've been doing it for 30 years. And you go, so how does it help you? Well, with traumatic brain injury, one, it helps you know if someone's had one and if there is lasting effects. Because not all people who have a traumatic brain injury have lasting effects. If your spec scan is abnormal right away after an injury, it's actually not predictive. But if your spec scan is abnormal nine months later, it's predictive that you're going to have trouble unless someone works to rehabilitate it. I did the big NFL study at a time when the NFL was in active denial about traumatic brain injury in football. And it was so clear. We saw high levels of damage. But that sort of wasn't the point. I think most nine-year-olds, when they realize brain is soft, skull is hard, skull has sharp bony ridges hit it repeatedly, even with a helmet on, you're going to cause trouble. 80% of our players got improvement when we put them on a rehabilitation program. That was the point, is I can show you how much better you can possibly be with the right interventions. And SPECT has actually been shown to be predictive of how people do from traumatic brain injury. With depression, the first thing I learned 
1991, when I started ordering scans, is depression is not one thing. Depression is 10 different things in the brain. Sometimes depression comes from having too little activity. Sometimes depression comes from having too much activity. Sometimes depression comes from being exposed to toxins like drug abuse that the patient didn't tell you about or mold exposure. Sometimes it comes from infections like Lyme. And the scans, there are different patterns for trauma, for toxins, for when the brain works too hard or not hard enough. And so I came to believe that, well, depression is sort of like fever. You know, it tells you what's going on, but it doesn't tell you what's causing it or really what to do for it. The scans have just, they've, they've just been the never ending teacher for me. And when I first started doing it, there were actually all day conferences at the American Psychiatric Association in 1992 and 1993. And then the APA got very uncomfortable with SPECT because it doesn't at all support the DSM. It's sort of like, and Tom Insel was director of the National Institute of Mental Health, basically called the DSM a very troubled document because, again, it describes what it is. It doesn't, like schizophrenia, it doesn't talk about why it is. And what imaging does is it gives you a look at the underlying biology so you can target treatment to your individual patient's brain rather than a group's cluster of symptoms. I hope that makes sense. And when I saw my brain, and it wasn't great the first time I scanned it, I developed a concept that has been so helpful to me. I call it brain envy. I scanned my mom the week before, and she had a stunningly beautiful brain for a six-year-old woman. At 37, mine wasn't nearly as nice, and so I wanted her brain. I had come from this very competitive family. And so I had brain envy. I always say Freud was wrong. Penis envy is not the cause of anybody's problem. I haven't seen it in 40 years being a psychiatrist. But if I can get people to love their brains, and the scans do that, you develop like a personal relationship with your brain, then you never want to hurt it once you see it. Thank you for answering that question. Katie, are you satisfied with Dr. Eamon's response? Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was incredibly helpful. Thank you for coming up and asking your question. So I see a really interesting question for Dr. Robin, and I'd love to have Dr. Jenny Lacey ask this question. I love it. I think it's super interesting. Thank you so much. Hi, Dr. Robin Smith. You know, my question is sometimes I will encounter where people can over-spiritualize mental health challenges and not get the help they need. So I was wondering what your thoughts are around mental health and that fine line of over-spiritualizing as a way to cope and deal with mental health issues. Thank you. This is Janie. Thank you, uh, Dr. Janie. That's a wonderful question. Some of you may know that I'm not only a licensed psychologist, but I'm also an ordained minister. And that can be uh, confusing for people because when they hear the part of me that is driven by science, 
then they wonder where is the balance of spirit. And I think what's interesting about your question is that one's faith, whatever that means to someone, can be a resource. It also can be a place of hiding, a place where you go to not feel, can really be used as a drug. I mean, to numb you, to numb a person from what is hurting. And so my thoughts about this are to over-spiritualize often means that you're, you're separating yourself from being a human. You know, the part of you that is just like the rest of us and that struggles. And so when I hear people, I'll ask someone how they're doing during a very difficult time and they may just hop right over that question, right to that they're doing great because spiritually, and then they give me, you know, kind of a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound is what I call it. So I think if we take our thoughts, if we use our thoughts and use the power as we've been talking about the brain, the power of our brain um, to be restorative, to face the things that are difficult and challenging, that's very different than denying them. Now, having said what I just said, the other piece of this is that sometimes we may over-spiritualize something because it is the only way we know to function and to cope in that moment. And so it is something that you would not want to shame someone, but maybe help them through kindness and great compassion, make soft space for them to be with the complexity of their feelings and not just a quick Band-Aid answer. So I don't know if that addresses what you were asking, Dr. Cheney. Absolutely. And I certainly appreciate the response, uh, Dr. Robin. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Robin. And for those of you who aren't yet, make sure you follow Dr. Robin. She's really active on this app. She's got a room in the Human Behavior Club every Sunday at 10 a.m. So if you enjoyed her contributions to this conversation, make sure you follow her. Okay, so Dr. Janie, thank you so much for your uh, question. It was excellent. And we are gonna move on to Dr. Marwa. Please ask your question to the panel. And anybody who wants to chime in, just flash your mic, unmute, and, and let's just keep it casual for the rest of the session. I want to just preface my question with a little story that will lead to why I'm asking the question, which is about the use of antidepressants or treating depression within the individual. Um, This psychiatrist was um, interviewed and he was telling a story about how he went to Cambodia and he happened to go to Cambodia when antidepressants were just released in Cambodia. And he was telling them that there's this chemical antidepressant that will treat depression. So Cambodian doctors were like, what do you mean a chemical that will treat depression? So then a Cambodian doctor said, let me tell you how we treat depression. And he tells him the story of this farmer whose leg was blown you know, in the war. He is a farmer in a rice farm. And then he couldn't work. And he got a fake, you know, prosthetic one. And unfortunately, he was too traumatized to work in the same field. So he started crying. He started being sad. Classic symptoms of depression. So the community got together and said, okay, so he can't be a farmer work in the rice fields. And they got, he got them a cow. The community got together and got him a cow. 
And then after that, well, the sadness was gone. The crying was gone. And then the Cambodian doctor looked at him and said, see, Dr. Summerfield, that is the cow was the antidepressant. So the, my question becomes, and there's nothing wrong with using medication because there is, there is, there are cases that warrant the use of antidepressants as first line. But when the causes of depression has to do with particular circumstances in society that gives rise to this to depression, and when the person who's taking the antidepressants goes back to a society that doesn't support and doesn't problem solve, how does that work? Um, so I'm Marwa Azab, and I look forward to the answers from the panel. Awesome. Does anybody on stage want to answer Dr. Marwa's question here? This is Dr. Robin. Just one of the thoughts I have, and I really appreciate your question, because this is, I mean, Clubhouse is a global platform, and it reminds us, no matter how you know big we think our little worlds are, that the world really is quite large. And we are now connecting with that large world um, because of social media, because of Clubhouse and other platforms. But I love what you're asking about because this issue around culture and what happens in one place that is seen as illness that is normalized in a different culture. We see this so much, or I see this so much in terms of the Western culture pushing away suffering, pushing away uh, limitations and depression and sadness and despair where in Eastern cultures, there is an embracing of it. There is a deep understanding that despair and complexity comes with being human. And so as I hear you tell, you know, this story, it reminds me, and I think it's important for all of us in the room, that what we know we know often in cultural contexts and how we grow is by um, coming to know other cultures and other ways of making meaning that are different than our own. And they may not, you know, fit with who you are or who I am, but they work resiliently and robustly in other cultures and other families. And so thank you for the question and just for reminding us that, you know, the same situation can be seen very, very differently simply by where we were born and who we were born to and where we are living and what part of the hemisphere um, we're in. So it's just, a, it's a very important moment for us to wake up to and lean into. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Robin. And it looked like Daniel wanted to also mention something. Daniel, did you have to, something to say? Well, I love that example. When I was in medical school, was hammered to us, first do no harm. Use the least toxic, most effective treatments. And American psychiatry changed in the 40 years since I decided to be a psychiatrist because of managed care, we really used to be the primary care doctor for people who struggled with their mind. And that changed. I mean, we had an hour or two or three, sometimes four a week with our patients and really got to know them and got into their lives. And then in the early 1990s, managed care came and decided they could pay 
psychotherapists, marriage and family counselors, licensed professional counselors. And this is in no way to demean them. They could pay them less. And we were doomed to be the prescriber, which I've affectionately termed the candy man or the pharmaceutical rep. And I hated that. I, I never bought into it because it wasn't my training. But 85% of psychiatric drugs are prescribed by non-psychiatric physicians in 12-minute office visits. And think about that. When you start an antidepressant or you start an anti-anxiety drug or medication for sleep, they're insidious in that they change your brain to need them in order for you to feel normal. And of course, there's a place for them, but it's just never the first and only thing I think about if somebody's depressed because they lost their place in society, the work is get them back to a place that they, you know, might fit. That's the work. It's not which SNRI or SSRI should you give them. And we're just too quick to rely on them. And now 23% of women are taking antidepressant medication in this country between the ages of 20 and 60. And I don't know about you, but that's flat out horrifying that we can do way better. And conversations like tonight hopefully will help us be better. Thanks, Dr. Daniel. Amen. And I'm really glad you brought up women because it's something that we didn't get a chance to actually talk about today. But there's a lot of populations that are more impacted by mental health issues than others. Like women, for example, are impacted and more likely to suffer from depression twice as much as men, which is just crazy. And teenagers are more impacted. And so there's certain pockets of people that we need to pay special attention to. And that brings us to our next question that I think is really interesting. It's from Sheila. Sheila, I would love for you to ask your question to kind of shed light in terms of the different groups that are impacted with mental health differently. Thank, thank you so much. I joined like about, I want to say 30 minutes ago, but I've been like just educated a lot with the different opinions and, and thoughts that I've heard. So thank you so much for having me ask this question. So I have an, my name is Sheila Kwar and I have an organization called Jenga Africa that um, helps young people in Africa who are going through uh, mental health issues, depression, and, and suicidal issues, and so on. This was a journey that um, I overcame after 20 years of battling with suicidal attempts and, and so on. And um, in 2013 was when I overcame everything. So I founded the organization because I saw a lot of people, especially young people in Africa, mostly Kenya, because that's where I'm from, suffering with mental health issues, and no one really had a solution. So even looking back, I don't really blame the community that I was in or my family for not knowing what to do because they didn't have the tools or the resources. I recently came to Kenya to get everything like um, started. So I've been like having lots of like media appearances talking about the topic and it's been overwhelming getting the um, amount of emails of people who are just looking for help. So I have two questions. Um, the first one is, and I'm directing this to Dr. Robin or Nidhi or anyone who can be able to answer. How can you get people to open up? Stigma is huge in um, Kenya right now. People are not talking at all. 
And um, obviously it's because like some people attach mental health issues to madness, insanity, um, witchcraft. It's a sin. It's so much stigma. Like it's, it's like, where do you begin? So my first question is, we know that there's stigma and Nidhi talked about getting people to know that they're not alone and that support is out there. But how do you get them to get from that mindset of you're not alone? <laughs> it's OK to speak up about your issue and, and just to step out and not look at yourself as weak or that you have a, an insanity problem. That's my first question. My second question is, how do we move people from having this purely biomedical approach? I'm not opposed to medicine, but for me, I overcame my issues um, because um, God found me. <laughs> and that's also another thing that I've seen people don't really like to accept because they look at it as a crutch. But what therapy couldn't do for me, I found it in God. So how can we instill other methods besides the biomedical approach um, to get people to receive some type of help? Awesome. Who on the panel wants to give that two-part question a shot? Okay, let's kick it off with Dr. Robin. Yeah. So thank you so much for that question. And I love your part of the world, um, Kenya. So um, as the world is opening up and safety comes, um, I want to put my feet on your soil sooner than than not. But I will say this. It's so important when you ask, like, how do we break the silence, um, the stigma, being troubled, having a mind that is troubled and that it's not weakness, as you said, and it's not witchcraft. There isn't, you know, something sick or wrong with us and we're not broken. And a part of that is what I've found over, you know, 25 years of being in practice and, you know, being on television and radio and all of the things and writing books is that my own willingness to tell people my story, you know, Dr. Amen talked tonight and I shared some of my story and Amy and Nitty. I mean, people talked about their own suffering and their own problem solving and their own healing. And so I have found that even when people want to deny or feel terrified of giving voice to this part of themselves that is, you know, suffering or struggling, that when I give voice to the parts of me that struggle, not that used to struggle, but kind of where's my struggle, you know, on May 18th? And, you know, what am I, how have I made a decision? Because being well, physically and mentally and spiritually and financially is a decision. And it is a spiritual practice of habits. And being ill and not taking care of ourselves is also ways in which we neglect ourselves in those areas. So I would just suggest, and not to overly simplify this, but it is such a powerful tool to use yourself as the instrument of liberation by telling your story and your journey and what you're doing about the parts of you that feel fragile and robust. Like I tell people all the time that whether they're showing up at Clubhouse to be in a room with me or I see them on a street corner or in a you know grocery store and they're sharing something that I said that had meaning what I always want people to know is that 
I am fully human. I have holes, H-O-L-E-S, which I want to be whole, W-H-O-L-E, which is a holy, H-O-L-Y journey. And so if we normalize that we have holes, we'd have to have holes because we're human. It's what comes with being human and that we are fragile and we are strong. So that's not an either or, but it is a both and. And I think if you can take that both and into your own life and back to Kenya, whether you know mental wellness or mental health or mental illness has a stigma, you will help people find their voice when you offer yours. I have an asterisk for that if it's if it's helpful. So I, I work with suicidal patients uh, for a living um, all the time. I'm actually the author of Adolescent Suicide and Self Injury with some colleagues, and I have bipolar disorder myself. I was hospitalized for a suicidal depressive episode in residency, and the inpatient unit at uh, the hospital I went to wasn't any more pleasant than I imagine some you know of your you know, other places in the world can be when people are talking about suicide and thinking those thoughts. What I can say is that feeling understood is the way we can open the gates, building that uh, what we call epistemic trust, trust in social information with people who are feeling so terrible. Because one of the problems is, you know, the positivity that people think will be helpful isn't. Because when people hate themselves, it sounds like a lie. And they mistrust help when it's not helpful, which frankly it often isn't. And so when you're approaching people who you know think this is demonic possession, I wouldn't argue with them about it. I'd be curious about their experience of demonic possession and how that's you know going for them because it's probably not something they're a fan of if that's the way they understand the problem. And oftentimes, that's how people will, you know, kind of tell the story of their experience. And that's not any more or less valid than a brain-based explanation to the person themselves. So what people are actually looking for on average <laughs> is feeling that the person who's listening understands them the way they understand themselves. And that leads to an emphasis on validation as an approach for understanding people's experience. So being curious and not closing off your line of questions until you really feel like you're understanding it the same way that they are. And at that point, they can kind of sometimes loosen up a little bit enough to be able to see things from alternate perspectives. But before that time, we're just kind of arguing from different vantage points. And that's pretty profoundly unhelpful for a lot of people. There are evidence-based approaches to this. And luckily for suicidality, there are Everything with evidence is psychotherapeutic, with the exception now of Janssen doing two studies on esketamine. Good job, uh, industry, for finally doing a study on major depressive disorder with suicidal ideation. But those kinds of interventions are you know, wildly expensive at this point in time, and psychotherapy doesn't have to be. And it doesn't have to be experts who are trained up. I'll agree with what Dr. Amon said previously. Like Psychiatry is a medical discipline, and we take it really seriously. And spending enough time to kind of understand people's problems is, I think, a crucial part of what we do. Is that helpful? Did that like meaningfully answer your question about your situation in Kenya? 100%. Both you and, and Dr. Robin have been able to help me just in that, not to dismiss their reasons, 
for thinking the way that they're thinking and more so just trying to find out where that comes from. And also, like as Dr. Robin said, using your, your story. And the stories that people can relate to. So the more relatable mm-hmm. the, the examples, the better it's going to go. So hearing mm-hmm. it from someone who isn't relatable to the audience isn't actually that helpful. Education is actually only like modestly to mildly helpful, but relatable people telling stories about their own experience and recovery being helpful, that really works. So I hope that's helpful and Godspeed in, in what you're doing because people everywhere really desperately need the kind of help you're looking to provide. And I see that Jonas and uh, Nitty have something to add. So let's go to Jonas and then Nitty. Sure. Just a brief point, Sheila. First of all, I applaud the work you're doing. Uh, it's uh, immensely challenging. And I think the important thing for you to do is to think about how you scale the story of empathy nationwide. And there are many ways to do that. And I you know, would be happy to talk to you about it offline, but I've done this in other countries as well. One of the things to focus on is, is the ritual of storytelling and how storytelling impacts community at the household level and um, more broadly intergenerationally from elders to middle-aged to children. And I think there is a common thread there. And when you build that archetype, the droplets filling up the bucket overflow into a river, and that river flows into a, a place where behavior change happens and acceptance happens and the embrace happens spiritually, you're on the right path. But again, this is about the journey and it's a long one and it's 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 really one of endurance. But there, you know, know that all of us here are, are here to support you. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with uh, the idea of modeling, right? I think that that's such an important piece of being able to normalize these discussions on mental health. And one other thing I'll add in there too is, you know, when I've worked, I'm I'm Indian American myself. And so culturally, in Indian culture, mental health is not necessarily something that has been at the forefront or something that's been discussed. And there is quite a bit of stigma culturally. And so I'm kind of hearing, Sheila, that there's some similarities there where perhaps it's looked at as uh, something is, is physically wrong or there's like a possession happening. And I found that in those instances, being able to meet people where they're at, I think is so key. So to Owen's point, right, not not pushing against that narrative, but finding where you can get the buy-in. So for example, in some of with some of the clients that I've worked with that are from different cultures where there is such a, a strong stigma against discussions on mental health, I may start with somatic complaints right? So the idea that perhaps there's stomach aches that are happening or headaches that are happening as a result of some of the emotional distress. And if we start with those physical symptoms and eventually start to build up the capacity to mentalize and understand the connection between physical health and our emotional well-being, well, by that point, we have developed the trust. We've started where the client is willing to begin, which is where they have buy-in in their physical health. And then eventually we're able to start to make those connections. And so I think that's an important component as well is just being able to kind of lean in where someone is willing to start and then using that as the opportunity and jumping off point to get the buy-in and strengthen that relationship. How I just want to, this is Dr. Robin, just Sheila, I want to say one last thing, which is so important. And I think we've all said this in a different way. Also make sure that you are practicing great self-care because the journey of helping other people can uh, take so much with all of your passion and all of your commitment from you that make sure you are filling your own tank up, that you are doing things that bring joy and ease to your life so that you have 
um, something to give to other people from your overflow, not giving, and then you have nothing left for you. So fill your own tank up and make sure that you find ways to play and, uh, again, find joy and ease so that you can do the work and be the work that you're called to do. Thank you. All such amazing responses. So Sheila, I'm sure you're well satisfied with all of these answers to your amazing questions. So thank you so much for coming up on stage. Uh, Are you satisfied with all of these answers? 100%. I've actually already messaged Dr. Robin and Nidhi. I'm having a huge event um, August in Kenya to like a whole bunch of schools, over 30 different schools. And, and it's just an amazing event. And I'd like to have you guys' participation and to send you more information. So if you could please uh, just have a keep an eye out for that um, email. Hala, who was the gent- the first gentleman that spoke to me? I think I was confusing um, Jonas um, and someone else because I'd like to message Jonas and the gentleman who spoke. I think Owen was, yes, Dr. Owen. Owen, Owen. okay, yep. perfect. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Sheila. So Alex, I see you have a question that I had as well in terms of social media and mental health, and we didn't get to cover it. So I'd love for you to ask your question about social media. Sure thing. So, thanks so much, Paula, for having me up on stage. It's always great talking to another podcaster and hearing you just continue to crush it. So thank you for hosting. This has been great so far. And thank you to all the moderators who have done such a great job here. To briefly give a little bit of context about my question here, I have new online businesses. They're more in startup phase. And because of that, I'm online a lot. And a little bit of context here that I won't be able to take a digital detox at this point in my life. I know that that isn't or any sort of extended break from tech. That just isn't realistic right now. So obviously, because these are online businesses, I'm spending a lot of time on screens, which I know has many negative side effects. And I can tell in my life from just a year ago when I started this process, going from maybe five hours a day on screens to now 10 or more, I can tell that it makes a big difference mentally. I can't quite tell what it's doing, but I can tell it is making a difference. So I wanted to just hear from everybody here again, without being able to take a digital detox or extended breaks necessarily, what do you recommend I can do in short bursts to make sure I'm prioritizing my mental health regarding the negative effects that screens seem to have? Young and Profiters, my company, Yap Media, is growing fast. We're onboarding client after client. We're landing a ton of huge deals. And my team just can't keep up. I knew we needed to hire new employees to support my team, but I didn't want to waste my time sifting through candidates who aren't good fits for my company. That's why I use Indeed, the ultimate hiring platform. Indeed makes it easy for me to find great talent fast. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality candidates compared to other job sites. And I don't have to spend hours looking for these great candidates. Indeed's matching engine sends me a list of quality candidates who meet my job requirements the moment I post a job. I can also message candidates, screen their profiles and resumes, send them skills assessments, and schedule interviews with them all from Indeed. It's really an all-in-one platform. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to give your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash profiting. Just go to Indeed.com slash profiting right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash profiting. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, AI is changing how we do business. At Yap Media, we use AI to do things like create AI voice models of my voice in case I get sick, 
And we also use it for basic things like transcribing captions and our meetings. This AI and algorithm-infused world is awesome, but it does dramatically increase all the choices and decisions we have to make in business on a daily basis. Everything is just so much more complex than it used to be. We have to be sure to analyze our data to make the right decisions while also avoiding assumptions and cognitive bias. Ultimately, we all could use some better critical thinking skills moving into the future. And we can look no further than to Economist Education. They just rolled out a new critical thinking course, but it's different from other programs out there on the topic because they focus on today's AI environment and they use real case studies that help you challenge your narrow views and avoid groupthink. Economist Education has two to six week online programs covering everything from international relations to writing and sustainability, and they're made specifically for executives and entrepreneurs. Their programs feature experts and senior editors from The Economist. Actually, one of my favorite authors, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, is one of the guest speakers in the critical thinking course that I just took. When you sign up for one of their programs, you also get a three-month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning. Economist education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I've got a special offer to get you started. Get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to my exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash profiting. That's education.economist.com slash profiting. And enter my code profiting at registration. This offer ends March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash profiting and use code profiting at checkout. Sure, let's go to Kate and then Owen. Let's do that. Awesome. Yeah, Alex, thank you so much for your question. And I'm so happy to hear that startup founders like yourself are really looking at their relationship with tech and mental health, because there's definitely a correlation there. So, I mean, I work with, at Talkspace, I work with clients who also are founders of startups. And we talk about digital wellness a lot. And there's just a few... I guess, offerings I would <laughs> share with you here. One is sort of in like the short term and, and one is like collecting data on yourself. So I, I mean, I've encouraged my clients to almost like track for a week or so, just basic things like, you know, when do you wake up? How much time do you spend on different apps or, or at work? You know, how does it make you feel? And also kind of noting, like, how are you sleeping? What are you eating? Are you drinking water? I'm just basically gathering data on yourself and then looking at that sort of at the end of the week and see if there's any themes that stand out or any places that you see that you can sort of make some small changes. And like I was saying earlier, you know, kind of uh, our brains are really beautiful. <laughs> beautifully designed to like make these sort of smaller one degree turns that that add up like so basically just lots of small little changes. So that's like one thing, I guess another just more immediate offering is to kind of like change a few boundaries and settings that you have with your tech as best you can. So even just like we know the research about the notifications and sort of the dopamine hits that we get. Um, so what that sort of means for, for you or what I sort of tell my clients sometimes is like, put your phone in grayscale, try and see what it's like to not kind of have the excitement of all of the colors or to try and move like the apps that you don't really need so, so much off to like another page. So when you open your 
your phone, all you really see is like, you know, your email, your messages, just some basic things like that. And just the last sort of thing to offer here for sort of how to support your mental health is, (laughs) I mean, I'm biased as a therapist and also working in uh, mental health tech startup talk space is that, I mean, I would recommend therapy or or like looking into working with, you know, a mental health provider. I I know whenever I start working with clients and I imagine a lot of my healthcare, you know, providers here on the stage too, you know, whenever I talk with a client, I'm like, I wish I met you six months ago. Like, you know, you don't have to really wait till things get so bad to, to come to see a therapist. But as it sort of relates to digital mental health, like I'll have my clients just sort of send me a quick audio message or like on Talkspace, you can send messages, you know, you can have live video sessions. So that's like a, a quick sort of daily or a couple times a day way you can sort of check in with a therapist and, and, um, kind of come up with a more personalized plan for you. I hope that helps. Yeah, that does a lot. So, I mean, I just wrote down a few things to take inventory, collect data, set some better boundaries and test different things with your tech. And then, like you said, the last thing there is to, to get therapy. Very helpful. I took a lot of great notes on that. Thank you, Kate. Awesome. Let's go to Owen and then Jonas. Uh, briefly, I mean, absent like an actual mental health problem uh, that you're identifying, like if you feel bad in some way, uh, that's a good reason to like get an evaluation for why that might be from a professional. Sleep is the guardian of mental health. And 460 nanometer light, that's bright blue light, is present in all the monitors and screens we have. There are three photoreceptors in the eye. There are rods, there are cones, both of which you've heard of, and in the 90s, they discovered a third. It doesn't actually project the visual cortex. It only projects to a part of the brain we call the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is the day-night clock center of the brain. And so when we're looking at screens, your brain thinks daylight. And that means awake. Uh, There are glasses you can get that are designed for lasers at 460 nanometers. And you can even get them over your actual glasses because if you're like me and you're working on a screen all the time, you probably already have glasses. And if you don't, they look much more stylish. (laughs) But blocking that 460 nanometer light starting at whenever dusk is in the part of the world you're in is a great way to tell your brain it's nighttime. So you will fall asleep more naturally. And that is a godsend because uh, actually sleeping appropriately is the thing that will keep you from going insane more than almost anything else you can do. So I hope that's helpful. And um, if you yeah, have that's any- so good. I'll tell you what, I, I've been very proactive with this. And that's why I'm asking these questions. And I have some of these glasses that you're referring to. I have not been wearing them because I have great natural light, but I never even thought about wearing them as the sun's going down. So starting at dust to wear those. A lot of good points, Owen. Thank you so much. They've actually done studies in those in bipolar disorder, and they do what's called virtual darkness treatment. And so they'll give people 14 hours a day with acute mania of virtual darkness with those glasses versus placebo glasses. And in a week, you get a 70% remission rate of acute mania. So it's a profoundly potent biological intervention. Dusk is the time when you do it. Super interesting. We're all about sleep education at Younger Profiting Podcast. So definitely agree with you that sleep is important. And I love my blue light glasses. Jonas, what do you have to add? Sure. So Alex, just a cautionary tale really quickly. So I'm a serial entrepreneur myself, obviously very, very deep in uh, mental health research for a variety of reasons, both personal and professional. But I will say this. I also had a TBI, as, as Dr. Amen knows, and you know, I talked about this years ago, but I had a massive stroke when I was working at a startup in my 20s. And part of that was due to overwork. So I want to caution you to 
prioritize rituals that are helpful and beneficial in terms of creating space in your life such that you have human hours and you operate around human hours. You don't need to kill yourself in the process of becoming successful. I love ambition myself and am unapologetically ambitious, but I will say this, that you have to prioritize your sleep, as Owen was saying. You have to prioritize your nutrition. And you know it might mean getting up a little earlier as opposed to spending more late nights. I don't know how you orient your schedule. I'm happy to talk about that with you offline, but Look at your, your calendar for the week, for the day, and make sure you have white space so you can recharge and get outside and get your eyes off of the, the blue screen computer, the electrons, because ultimately you have to find ways to, to search for whatever balance looks like for you. And the more you put it off, the more damage you'll do. One other really quick tip that I think is incredibly helpful, and this is based on the work of uh, Dr. James Pennebaker um, here at UT Austin, is that to keep a journal and just carve out 15 minutes a day where you can get your eyes off the screen and tune into where you are emotionally, where your thoughts are, and it'll help you unburden yourself and hopefully be a huge stress relief for you. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you. Something I just started doing because I definitely don't want to fall into that overwork because I downloaded a little app that just tracks my hours. So simple, like a simple way to clock in and out, basically. And I'll completely admit it. This year, I've been working 11-hour days, five days a week, which is too much. And my goal is just to subtract 10 minutes per week. So every day now, I'm, this week I'm doing 10 hours and 50 minutes. And next week I'll do 10 hours and 40 minutes. My goal is to get it down to working 35 hours a week starting in January, 2022. And I'm going to be very serious about that. And Jonas, that really helped a lot hearing you say that as well. Awesome. Well, so glad we were able to help you. Alex, thank you for supporting the event and asking your question. And we're going to move this along. Caroline, I see that you are on stage, or Carolyn, most likely is how you pronounce it. And you have a very technical question. I was hoping we would catch Dr. Amen for this question, but he left. So hopefully somebody on the stage can answer it. Do you want to ask your question? Yes, thanks so much for having me, Hala. And I appreciate the strength of everybody who's been on stage and spoken. So we've just talked about the importance of sleep and I'm a health coach and I believe me, I really do believe that I've got a kiddo who can't get a good night's sleep thanks to some mild TBIs, some concussions. And I just wondered, especially since Dr. Amen isn't here, if a spec scan isn't an option, does anyone have any insight into whether a QEEG is something that's helpful and do any of you use it in your practices? Um, Carolyn, I'm done speaking. Data on QEG um, is varied. Where do you live? In the Northeast. So what you should do is go to the Healthy Brain Network, www.healthybrainnetwork.com. It is the largest neuroimaging study of youth ever attempted. It's being done through the Child Mindset Institute. Your child will get 12 hours of language learning and neuropsych testing, as well as a functional magnetic resonance imaging scan that will cost you nothing. You'll actually be paid for your participation. That's the most comprehensive free thing you could get, and it's going to be a lot more reliable than QEEG. So that's what I would do if I lived in wow. a world, which I do. Uh, feel free to message me, and I can send you the link. Michael Milhelm, who runs the program, is a friend and colleague, and they do really remarkable work. And it's it's like they pay you one fifty for that. It would normally cost like five thousand dollars. That was the biggest gift I've gotten in a long time. I'm so appreciative. I'm happy to help. 
I'm so glad that I I was like, you know what? Let me just see if somebody can answer this question. So I'm so glad that we were able to help you. I felt so bad that Dr. Daniel Amen left before you could ask your question. So I'm happy we're able to help you. And yeah, make sure you direct message Owen. And thank you, Owen, for all your amazing advice. Make sure you direct message uh, Dr. Owen so you can get that information, okay? Thank you so, so much, Holla. Of course. Okay, guys. So we are wrapping this up. Diana, I know you've been on stage and uh, you wanted to give flowers to Dr. Caroline Leaf. So even though she's left, this is recorded for Young and Profiting Podcast. It's going to be on the podcast. So I'd love for you to, you know, unmute and give your flowers to Dr. Caroline Leaf. Yes. So I definitely wanted to share that with her. And I know she did leave, but I did want to just come on stage and say thank you all for your work because as an individual who has been doing her work as an attorney, I'm doing my work in my practice of helping women and helping organizations and diversity and inclusion. I did experience a significant shift after George Floyd was murdered. I, along with a lot of black women have experienced this and I come from that environment as a young person growing up in the church and realizing you know, that mental health is not talked about. And it is definitely something that we just believe we should pray away. But I just want to say thank you so much for your research. Thank you for your work. Thank you for normalizing the conversation because sometimes we professionals, and I'll speak for myself as an attorney, can really speak above people. And we aren't speaking with people and having their voices heard. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you for normalizing these conversations and helping individuals feel a sense of peace, calm, and focus that we can get through these challenges and we can come out on the other side better people so that we can serve others. That's why we're here on this earth is to serve them with everything that we have. So thank you, Hala, and thank you everyone for your work. Thank you, Diana. Thank you for uh, giving your kudos to Dr. Caroline Leaf. She joined Young and Profiting Podcast back in episode number 114, and she was absolutely amazing. I got so much feedback on that episode. People listened to it three times. She's the type of person where in five minutes, she says so much. You have to listen to it over and over to really digest what she said, and she is brilliant. So I totally agree. A lot of people who are on this panel today, like Dr. Daniel Amen, Amy Marin, Dr. Robin Smith, Jonas has been on my podcast. A lot of these uh, folks who've been on the panel and many of them, you know, hopefully soon will be on my podcast. So definitely check that out and make sure you guys, if you haven't yet, follow everybody who's on stage here on Clubhouse and on Instagram. Diana, thank you so much for your amazing contribution. I'm going to move you down to the audience and we're going to start moving along here on the Q&A. So we mentioned psychedelics earlier and a bunch of folks gave their perspectives. Kat, I see you have a question on the topic. Let's hear it. Hey, Hala, thank you for having me up. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I asked my question, I think about when you guys were talked a little bit before you you asked it, but I am curious sort of from the remaining people on the stage in terms of the promise of TMS and psychedelics, you know, as a psychiatrist, I was really fascinated by the, you know, some of the articles that have come out recently about the studies and sort of what people are hearing and experiencing in their own practices there. Owen, do you want to take this one? I was thinking that you had experience. It's it, it kind of my eye. So Kat and I have talked about this a little bit in the past. We were the first practice in New York to bring S-ketamine to the market, as it were, because there's a pretty restrictive 
risk evaluation and mitigation strategy or REMS program, which makes it, you know, practically speaking, a pain in the ass um, to deliver. It's also very expensive. That having been said, I've been frankly shocked at the efficacy of esketamine in our patients because we have like really treatment refractory patients on average. And essentially, at time point one, the average Beck depression inventory score is 39.5, which is stratospherically depressed for people who aren't, you know, fans of rating scales. At time point two, and it doesn't matter when that is, the average is a 50% drop. And that is freaking remarkable in the most treatment refractory patients. Keep in mind, we have transcranial magnetic stimulation as well. So these are often patients who've already failed or had it fail them, that intervention, which is also tremendously powerful. So I've been more whelmed, like I don't know about overwhelmed, but significantly whelmed by how potent esketamine is and the effect sizes on, you know, on, on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy are huge. If you looked at the, the psilocybin studies published in the Manual Journal of Medicine, like at a study, they didn't power to show a difference. They had a difference on every endpoint except the primary one. Like literally every secondary endpoint had statistically significant outcomes, which when you're comparing two things that are both active agents like aspirin and Plavix and stroke, generally takes 10,000 participants. In a ease 2 study that was like, hmm, we wonder what will happen, they're showing statistically significant differences. That tells me we're talking about effect sizes that are huge. These are not just statistically significant, they are wildly more potent and tolerable than the interventions we generally have at our disposal in pill form. And the only thing close is psychotherapy. Awesome. Kat, was that a helpful response? Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Um, You know, it's really exciting to hear about, and I think that there will be more conversations on it in the future. So really excited to hear about what's next. Getting any of it paid for, that's a whole other conversation, and I look forward to having with you in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kat. I'm going to move you down to the audience and we're going to take our last question here. Before we do that, I do want to say that this was recorded for Young and Profiting Podcast. We are sponsored by Talkspace. If you guys want to get $100 off your first month with Talkspace, head to Talkspace.com, use the promo code CLUB and you'll get $100 off. Um, So we're going to move this along to the last question. Kanisha. How can we help you here? I love your question. I saved it for last because I think it's a great way to end the show on a positive note. Hi, Hala. Thank you so much for this space. I mean, it's been so insightful to hear all the conversations around mental health and the importance of sleep. As a Gen Z, I definitely do not get a lot of sleep and I'll hopefully be working more on that. Um, But something that I'm really trying to learn about as I continue along my journey of spreading hope is what does hope and hopelessness really mean? And what is then the correlation between hope and mental well-being? And if there is a correlation, then can we use hope as a means of therapy? Let's start with uh, Nitty and then Owen. This is such a great question, Kanisha, because I think that hope is at the crux of mental well-being, right? Like the belief that we have the potential to manage and overcome challenges and adversity, mental health struggles, right? I think it's such a key component of being able to see the growth that happens, right? As we invest in our own treatment and our own well-being. So I love that you brought up hope. And something that I talk to often with my clients who are survivors of trauma is that while it feels as though so much of their life has been defined by this, these experiences that were traumatic, that even more exciting and something that's so important to keep in mind is that 
there's the opportunity for post-traumatic growth. And I think that when we, when we put it in the context that we have the opportunity to discover more about who we are, to truly connect with our purpose, to self-actualize in a whole other way without being encumbered by this past experience that was impacting us and impeding our functioning in such a deep manner that I think it brings so much hope to recognize that we can not only move through difficult experiences, but come out the other side so much stronger and with the capacity now to handle it in a completely different way. So I love the fact that you brought this up. Thank you so much for bringing hope into the equation and the conversation here. Thanks, Nitty. Let's kick it over to Owen. I think hope is like is the only thing that actually eventually heals us in the end. But the problem with it is it's a little bit like aspirin that's not coated for some people. It can be really hard on your stomach. Hope in its kind of unvarnished positivity form for people who are hopeless is going to feel really toxic. And they won't necessarily tell you that. They'll kind of smile and nod and say, uh-huh. And we refer to that in the mentalization-based treatment model as pretend mode right? So you're agreeing to have this kind of fake conversation. I've talked to hundreds, maybe thousands at this point of people who've attempted suicide or are considering doing so. And when you drop the BS, you're like, so you want to die, huh? They're so relieved to just actually be able to talk about how hopeless they are. And that actually opens the door to feeling understood and being held in mind as someone who's experiencing hopelessness, and that is something that's understandable, that actually allows you to restore that sense of curiosity, which is like the coded aspirin version of hope. Like, you don't have to like hope the future is going to be better, but you can be like, well, I wonder what's going to happen next. And as long as you're willing to turn to the next chapter, the next day in your life, you're not going to kill yourself. If you have hopes that can be dashed, it's it's less doable. And now I deal with a select group of individuals who like have had hope eradicated over and over again. And so approaching them with a more gentle version of, you know, deep darkness, but yeah, it's understandable, works for some of them. I remember I worked with a girl in the state hospital system and, you know, I showed up with a guitar and just sat down and said, hey, what's what's going on? We're just going to sing your note today. And she ended up like asking for my name. I said, what's that for? She's like, well, you're the, you're the best psychiatrist I've ever seen. Um, so I'm writing your name down in my book. And I was the covering doctor that day. And that was a real moment for me where that moment of hope for her, like meeting someone who understood her for once, which was really so powerful. She wanted to write my name down was a moment I felt really dark about because I was like, nobody else has ever gotten through to this kid in the 14 years of her traumatized life before. And so hope has both the power to inspire and the power to destroy. And I think curiosity is in the middle and that lets us get to the next day so we can find the hope that's actually there, but that we might not be ready to see. Awesome. What a great question, Kanisha. Thank you so much. And sticking on hope, I do want to close out this session and, and allow an opportunity for Nitty, Kate, Jonas, Owen, all of our participants who are still here to kind of chime in. So sticking on hope, what hope do you guys have in terms of the future related to mental wellness and mental health and the improvement of mental health in society? I know we talked about a lot of the negatives today. So what, what positives do you guys see coming along the way and what hope do you have on this topic? Maybe let's kick it over to Jonas. 
Sure. So from my standpoint, Hala, first of all, thank you so much again for creating the platform for us to have this conversation. And thank you to all of the other panelists for their contributions. I would say this, that we're on a journey and that change requires time and commitment and conviction as well. I think for us to move the needle forward in terms of humanity and this conversation around what it means to be human and the full spectrum of emotions and challenges and the opportunities to build resilience and learn and grow together is really what this is all about. You know, I'm, I'm sure some of us are familiar with the Dan Gilbert's work, Stumbling on Happiness, this idea that we're constantly growing, yet we, we tend to forget. And it's tied to this idea of the end of history illusion, meaning we can't change. We don't have any capacity to change. And the reality is that we're constantly changing. We're constantly growing. We're moving backwards and forwards. And we're, we're dealing with kind of surfing the waves of and the vicissitudes of life every day. And so the thing that I want to leave people with is this idea that we do have the capacity to change and that we're all in this together. And that to know deeply and fully that you're not alone and to not isolate yourself uh, because that's the worst thing you can do. So, so please make the effort, have the courage and be willing to, to get the help that you need. Even if it's so, so simple as asking a friend and, and just to hold your hand or whatever it might take, but put yourself on that in, in motion so you can give yourself a chance to succeed and be well. Awesome. Anybody else have some closing thoughts before we close out the room? There's like the most tremendously helpful study of all time being published in the very near future. Dr. Nolan Williams' group at Stanford is about to publish the randomized control trial on accelerated intermittent theta burst stimulation in treatment-resistant depression. And I'll sum it up thusly. 80% remission of treatment-resistant depression in five days in people who failed on average 13 medication trials. 80% depression over in five days with no medications whatsoever. Wow. Mic drop. That's now. That's true. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, it's bonkers. Awesome. Well, guys, this was such an incredible session. Looks like Nitty just has some closing thoughts. I'd love to hear them, Nitty. Sure. Thanks, Hala. Well, first off, I wanted to thank you so much for this beautiful discussion today. If people haven't already followed Hala, please do so because she's just awesome. And, you know, my closing thoughts are feeling very hopeful that conversations like this are happening, that people are starting to see the value in investing in their mental health, that we invest so much in our businesses, we invest in our appearance, we invest in so many different facets of our lives, but that our mental health is at the core of our well-being. So we have to invest invest time, money, energy, all of these things into taking care of ourselves. And I am just so hopeful and optimistic that Clubhouse has provided a platform for these types of discussions and that the Young and Profiting podcast is also featuring these types of conversations on mental health and well-being. So yeah, feeling very hopeful and grateful at the end of this. Yeah, Kate, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say a quick thank you so, so much, Hala, for this room and a big thanks to everyone else who has been listening and contributed to this discussion. I'm definitely feeling so hopeful that the spotlight is really being, is shining on mental health. You know, I'm sad for how it sort of has has gotten to this point that we really need to focus on our mental health. But I'm just so happy that we are finally 
kind of looking at this, talking about this. And, and my hope is that, you know, at some point in, in our future, we can kind of see the connection between our minds and bodies and see the importance of mental health as it relates to holistic health, like physical health. It would be amazing to have, you know, at least a once a year kind of like mental health checkup, like we do sort of a, an annual physical and, and to be able to collectively sort of work towards kind of seeing that there's nothing really wrong here. You know, our, our, our mental health is definitely something that we need to continue to sort of support. And there's so many different ways to do it, you know, especially with access to like digital therapies, you know, seeing a, seeing a therapist sort of from the comfort and convenience of your home. But so I, I do have a lot of hope for the future of, of healthcare, of mental health care. And I, I really hope we can continue these conversations. Thank you, Kate. That was beautiful. Guys, this was so uplifting. I feel like it was so educational. We covered so many different topics. We went into the science of things. We talked about, you know, spirituality. We talked about social media. We talked about different groups and how they're impacted with their mental health. And it was just such an inclusive totally complete conversation, you know, and a lot of the questions that I didn't get to ask the audience asked. So it just worked out perfectly. I really enjoyed this session. I do want to say thank you to our sponsors, Talkspace. If you guys want $100 off your first month of Talkspace, use the code CLUB for $100 off on Talkspace.com. And, you know, when this gets uploaded to Younger Profiting Podcast, we'll put that in the show notes. And for everybody on stage, thank you guys so much for your time. You spent two hours, you know, you're obviously dedicated to the cause. We appreciate Appreciate all your knowledge. Everybody, please make sure you follow all the mods here on stage, on Clubhouse, on Instagram. And again, thank you guys for your time. I think it was an excellent conversation. And with that, this is Hala and friends signing off. What a great session. Thanks guys again. And we'll see you again next week, Tuesday at 8 p.m. in the Human Behavior Club.